Hey, it's your boy, Big Sebastian's son, a.k.a. Quentin Quarantino. And your boy, turn it up here with the Minorities Report. Uh, we are the Minorities. And here is the report, my friends. Uh, so today we have a very special guest. Very special episode. Very special. I've been excited. I've been looking forward to this episode for quite some time. Yes. You know what I mean? He's been a very busy man. Hard to get a hold of, but we finally... We finally, tracked him down. We finally tracked him down and we, we cornered him for, for a few... For a few hours so we're gonna definitely take advantage of this wonderful time to talk to a very interesting fellow he's a some people may know him as a director some people may know him as a producer some people may know him as an editor uh, i know him as uh like an older brother um, i know him as uh, all three minus the older brother but hey the night is young right he will become your brother by the end of the episode yes. um it's our boy marky marks yeah, hey, my name is Mark Serpifunker. I'm the co-director and editor and producer and writer of uh, No Visible Trauma, um, which is a documentary film that looks at uh, serious incidents of police brutality and failings of accountability in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Uh, the film focuses on a handful of different cases, including a really starlight tour that then led to uh, an assault, another case of assault, uh, a, a fatal uh, shooting, a wellness check gone wrong, uh, and a number of other incidents. So it's, um, yeah, that's the that's the skinny about the film, uh, and uh, lots to talk about. So onwards and upwards. And hey, you know, like I, I got no limits on the family. You know what I mean? Like I'm always looking, you know, little brother. Okay. You know, like okay, I, you know. okay, okay. I'm or with big it. brothers. I'm with hey, it. I need big brothers big too. Brother. You know? Whatever. It's it's you know what? It's all it's all love. Age is just a number. It's all about respect. You know, it's actually, yeah. um, I actually talked about uh, um, uh, your family on the podcast one episode, speaking about uh, your mom, the, the level of, of kindness your mom has shown us over the years and shown how, like, she's a very genuine and good, loving person. I feel I feel connected just through the stories. She sounds like great peoples, and I'm sure she raised uh, great peoples as well. Oh, man. Well, I tell you, I mean, I'm, I'm excited to hear that, but she is going to flip. She's, she's, I mean, she might, she might, you know, box your ears a bit there, you know, being like, what, what do you mean you didn't send me over the pod? You know, like, she'd be chuffed. <laughs> to be honest with you, I'm very scared for your mom to listen to the podcast. I, I don't want her to hear me in that light at all. Doesn't want to open the box. <laughs> <laughs> Keep Pandora in her box. That's, that's right. Yeah, well, exactly. You open doors, you know, it's, you just cannot close them again. I mean, that's for real. It's, it's a pleasure to have you on. Either Thank you way, so much. Whether your mom hears it or not, it's a pleasure to have you on. <laughs> I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you, I just, I'm, 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 you know, I'm coming a little hot. I mentioned a little bit before we started, you know, I'm a little hot. I just watched the, the, the full feature and I, I don't know, we can't get into it right away, but I'm going to jump, I'm going to jump as soon as we get into this. And I just want to thank you for your work. Thank you so much. I'm, uh, it's just, uh, yeah, you know, it's been a long time coming and it's, uh, really means the world to, have people uh you know watching the film responding as, as strongly as you have to the film so i just uh, can't wait to to take the deep dive into the into the flick and, and talk about the police brutality and accountability in, in calgary and in canada amazing. more broadly amazing yeah it's um it's, it's very interesting because um a lot of people would say that um all the police brutality normally happens in the states and overseas but uh we definitely got a lot of that stuff brewing in our own backyard um yeah, yeah just to see some of the the situations that transpired and and the level of uh i want to say camaraderie between the police officers like they're all complicit in these crimes which is interesting because they're supposed to be our protectors but they operate more like a gang yeah it's it's weird when you have to like 
it's it's us or them and you're talking about somebody that's supposed to be as trusted as a police officer well i think you know i think that what you just said about us and them i mean i having spent again like it's been about five years that we've you know been kind of researching the topic and i you know i came at this not i mean i would say i was moderately you know informed about uh, about sort of some of the issues around policing and brutality issues surveillance like all these different types of things but i really think that um at the end of the day the us versus them this mentality and it's very similar you see it like uh, there's definite parallels you know in a in a, in a military context with say an occupying uh force mm-hmm. uh, i really think that at the end of the day that is a huge it's a huge problem on a cultural level Definitely. and uh, and we just and we see it you know we can get into this like you know a number of times where uh i think there's it's and, and i've spoken to officers about it and we've seen it and i remember the incidents that we looked at in calgary where it's just like you know literally the language of you know well like the bad guy you know it's like we're the good guy and like that's the bad guy and clearly um (laughs) what determines that you know it doesn't require a court of law or any other you know it's just like you know anyone that you kind of come across and rubs you the wrong way i guess is the bad guy you've already yeah you've already pre-established the boundary where you're already the good guy therefore everybody on the other side's by default, the bad guy. Yeah, and here we are, and there's you know there's a lot of police where the you know there's now there's a lot of sort of complaining on the other side. Oh, we're we're all being painted with the same brush. You know, it's <laughs> like well, yes, there are bad officers, but we're you know, wow, it's just like you know, to me, it's all part and parcel of the same thing. It's like if you, when we have such a predominant this us versus them culture, it's just like well, for the people that aren't the police on the other side, it's not hard to imagine how people start to feel like that. That all the cops are you know the same sort of. Same makeup. The only, <clears throat> the only thing I I would say to those police officers who who say that like there are good police officers, I'm like, where are they when these incidents are, are going down, and why why are they being quiet? Like, they, what what's that quote? With that famous quote, uh, in order for evil to persist, all it takes is for good men to do nothing. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they they you guys uh, addressed it a lot in the film as well is how much pressure and uh, sort of just. Just the fear that's inst- like I, I, I know I have uh, a few friends that actually went into police foundations to try to follow up and be police officers. Some, some one uh, actually is I believe on the force now somewhere either Peel or here somewhere. He's been working at it for over ten years though in order to have finally gotten a job. So I understand like it's and um, another one who put in maybe five six years of work and trying to get onto the force never even got the job, and mm. but and for no no uh reason of like being short qualifications he had the grades he had the schooling he had the physical uh testing all completed like all that stuff was was good to go but still never made it on so i get that there's a lot of work that goes into even um trying to get on the force if you don't have you know a political in but there's um that fear and anxiety that you're going to lose your career like you guys addressed in the film so i can imagine if you are one of those people that had to put in that three, four, five years of work just to, you know, find your way onto a proper job into the police force, it might be very scary to have that all, you know, be able to be thrown away if you decide to speak up or go against the grain. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of different things going on there. You know, it's interesting because I think there's like the dynamics are quite different, um, you know, the in terms of like how difficult it is or is not to become a, a police officer in Canada, I think there's a big um 
different, you know, depending on where you are in the country. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, for example, like historically, Alberta and, you know, specifically like Calgary is one of these places where because the economy was, you know, just so much, you know, this is a booming economy, obviously now mm-hmm. it's in a slump, but, uh, you know, they just like basically couldn't get enough people. And actually they've been having a hard time um, recruiting people, not just in Calgary, but across Alberta. I don't know, like in Ontario or out, you know, in the Maritimes or something like maybe, maybe when, when the jobs are shorter to come by, it's harder to get. But I mean, like the Calgary police service, they even, they just like, there's tons of cops that are originally from uh, the UK in Calgary. And they, back in the, I believe in the late nineties and maybe in the two thousands as well, they did whole like recruiting campaigns in the UK to get people to move to Calgary just because there was such a shortage, you know? Um, but in terms of the actual training, I mean, the requirements, and again, this is, I think, pretty common across the country, but maybe there's some variance. But in Alberta, uh, well, let's just be specific. In Calgary, you know, you, what's required is a high school diploma or the equivalent thereof. And then the training is about, I think it's 27 weeks of training. What? Um, yeah. It. So it's, yeah, I think it's currently 27, and that's been consistent for, you know, it's somewhere in there. It's, you know, it's about half a year of training. So really, and, you know. Yeah, it's it's a lot like if you compare that, say, like with how long it takes to become a, like, a you know, other types of civil, you know, a, a social worker, for example. Um, you know, I mean, that's, a, you know, it's not even it's a fraction. It's nothing. Well, indeed. And one of the things that's been pointed out is that, you know, like to become a police officer, it's like, yeah, sure. I mean, there is a physical side where theoretically you need to be able to, like, you know, run after somebody or I don't know, detain them. Um, but you know, you need to, this is, this is the, the port, the, the unique role in society where you're entrusted to make decisions about where and like when to basically abrogate people's charter rights, you know, when to detain people. There's a whole, like, just a, it's a, it's a whole host of questions. And then actually the other thing too, is that not only that police officers are also, um, and I believe this is across the country, but certainly in Calgary, I mean, this is like who, like if somebody is charged, like say you um you're apprehended by a police officer for whatever crime you know x crime like um i don't know a robbery or something like that it's um or an assault charge let's just we could deal with assault charges for example if you've been accused of assaulting a police officer who is it that puts together that the the investigate who does the investigation to substantiate the assault charge and who actually files a charge it's the police so it's sort of like there's actually all these different layers. It's much more like what is required of the police is much more complicated than just pulling some over and giving them a ticket, you know. Yeah. Um, and then and then also, generally speaking, and this is very common, like very oftentimes um, what is what actually results in somebody being convicted will be the testimony or the notes or the, you know, the will say of, say, police officers. So really, it's this incredibly complex that like the whole criminal justice system all like hinges upon as it currently exists upon the the role of police and the notion that in 27 weeks, you know, you could, yeah. you could yeah. give somebody sufficient absurd. training to have, you know, I mean, that's, 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 that's a bit, absurd. it's really, yeah. And that's one of actually, the physical training, let alone the mental training that you need in order to be a, like in a position where you can take someone's life under the authority of the crown. Well, you know? totally, you know, and to be it's fair, true. like when you, when you become a, like when you've passed, when you've sort of like, graduated from the academy so to speak and then you're like you know there is like a training period and you're supposed to keep doing stuff but the point is like you basically get out there in public interacting with the public 
with yeah. um, very, very little training. And it doesn't have to be like that. I know, like, for example, one example I'm familiar with is, is uh, South Korea, where there's a national police academy. Now, over time, more and more police officers are going through this national police academy, which is basically like going to university. It's like a four-year program. Okay. Um, so that's been suggested as a way to like improve policing in Canada or on a provincial level would be to like to professionalize the police by... It would just be regulated like nationwide so that there's no discrepancies. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense. Like, you yeah, know, me too. Yeah, sure. Right? I mean, because like criminal law, you know, like some stuff is dealt with on a federal level. A lot of stuff is dealt with provincially. But one of the problems in Canada, it's like, you know, so Ontario, which is obviously the most populous province, there's the Ontario Police Academy, right, that deals with the province. And I don't know if all officers go there, but in a smaller, like if you go to, I don't know, Prince Edward Island or Saskatchewan or whatever, these places with less population, it's obviously challenging. So anyways, the, the notion yeah. of a regional or a national uh, curriculum and standards, I think, is not a crazy idea for sure. Well, yeah, it's at least a minimal way to get it standardized to a minimal level. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think that they, they would need, like, um, specific training for certain areas that they're going to be in because, like, even though we're all Canadian, not everybody is exactly the same. And, like, well, in, yeah, for certain sure. neighbor, neighborhoods are going to operate differently. Yeah, I think some then, like, specialized, right? Like, if you're going to go post up, I don't know, up north, you know what I mean? Or like, or wherever, you know, obviously, uh, you know, act like things are different. Yeah. I think special, like specialization on a, on a local level, like that makes a lot of sense, you know? Um, yeah, definitely. So, yeah. but that, that's what the, that's what the department should be for. Right. Like that's what they should get you used to whatever beat you're patrolling. I'm doing air quotes, but you know, there, I, I feel like the, the national, cause it's like, like, I know here, I don't know, I'm no expert on what it takes to become one here, but I do know that most of the people, everyone that I know that tried to be a cop, they had to go at least to college, which is a two or three year program before they can apply to, to and, do the like police academy part. And, and maybe in, um, you know, maybe in uh, Southern Ontario or in different districts, like that may totally be uh, the case. And I do think, I do think like a lot of, you know, like for example, Constable Trevor Lindsay, who we can talk about, he's been involved in a in a in a not good way in, in two of the incidents we focus on in the film like he you know he went to mount royal college and did um you know the two-year criminal i believe the criminal justice program there yeah um you know so he had that additional training it, it didn't seem oh, to uh i don't want to make it seem like i'm saying that <laughs> the, the two years is enough i don't want to i don't want to come off like because i know I, i'm 100 percent with you on the training level is not nowhere near where it needs to be because that just being prepared to handle situations i mean i thank god i never got involved with a serious um altercation with uh with a police officer i got yeah uh, and, I, and i've mentioned this on the podcast a lot but i was being pulled over on a very regular basis for several of my like younger years like between like 18 to 22 i was probably getting pulled over a minimum of two times a week for a brief period and then probably got down till two times a month at some point, but you know, mm -hmm. for no reason at all. So I like, I, I, I know what it's like to get targeted and I can't imagine, um, you know, some people that might not have the level of patience that I have <laughs> with dealing with those kinds of situations. If you speak out, they're just waiting for, for you know. any excuse, right? Exactly. That's all it is. So it, it's, and you can tell it, you can see like, you can see it in their eyes. 
it's I seen I've seen a lot of like messed up stuff from when I was young. So it, I was very cautious of cops from a very young very young age. You know, they have their they have their purposes, but they're not necessarily your friend. And I kind of yeah. already understood that from from a younger age. So I I don't know, like maybe some people get this illusion that cops are are sort of just angels, but they are regular people and when we don't filter those those guys out, it's uh it's it's the the level of power that we give them, I I think they deserve. It's like you guys said, they they have to be held up to a higher standard. Well, um, that's you, yeah. Sorry. sorry, no, you go ahead. Well, I was just gonna ask, um, what what level uh do like the police departments focus on, focus on like therapy, like how how often is therapy incorporated with these office officers? I mean, I there's I've you know, uh, I think that. Uh, support for mental health issues um, and, you know, reviewing mental health issues. I mean, a lot of officers in different parts of the country have uh, referred to that repeatedly um, as sort of one of the one of the areas that are so problematic. Um, so I, I would think it, it varies from district to district, like what kind of uh, supports are available for people. But there's definitely um, and there's, you know, a few of the cases we look at where um, you know, people are basically involved in what seem like very serious incidents and then are either just could keep going straight back to work or um, return to work after, um, you know, not a very uh, long amount of time off. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's not, uh, like I said, I think it would vary, but I do think that um, dealing with sort of trauma and the cultural side around being sort of tough uh, and all those things, I mean, uh, there's a lot of examples across the country of officers pointing to that uh, as being sort of an unhealthy um, part of things. Hey, it just occurred to me, fellas, that should we, for those who haven't seen the film, should we kind of introduce the yes the film? Oh see, I we knew just, I was hot. We just, I knew I was coming in hot. Yeah, we just jumped right in, right? Yeah, you know, no the blue. film. Yeah, the film and, that. Sorry, go ahead. Yes, you go ahead. No, no, no. I, yeah, I mean, it. yeah. Well, no, you guys go. I mean, more interesting coming from from y'all than from me. I mean, um, the film is No Visible Trauma. That's the that's the one that we saw the full feature, um, and it's incredible. It shows. Uh, it follows a few stories of a few different people. Um, obviously, I don't want to. Uh, like, I'm not going to reveal too much i'll leave that up to you as much as you would like to reveal about the film but it follows uh, several storylines and you see just um the the gradual progression of of uh, anxiety that has sort of uh, come into these people's lives sort of in a flash just because of a sort of uh, inappropriate flex of somebody that's that's in a position that's supposed to be protecting them and it's oh. it's really it's really beautifully painted, and I really do appreciate you guys' work because it's it's uh, it's done in such a way that really allows you to. It, it, you don't have to pick sides, you know. It's just the presentation of of the story, and you let your human side pick your side. That's all. That's all it really takes. It, any logical person can see what happened, and and then you know decide from that. One thing I think the film actually does really well is to show the ramification of the actions of these police officers. Because, like, a lot of times we hear about these things in the news and there's, like, 
That's it. We just hear it's brushed it. under the carpet after. Exactly. We never really you don't hear. hear. We, never, we don't hear from the family. Don't hear from the the relatives on lives how that ruined. situation affect their lives going forward. So I do think that I have to give it up to you for showing like the ramifications of each and every action that, that these um, these police have taken and and uh, just showing how how like these situations can affect and sometimes just it's even just destroy a person. And it's a ripple. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Well, that's really well put. I mean, just in the broadest strokes uh, for folks that uh, that haven't seen it. So yeah. So no visible trauma is the film. That's the feature length uh, film, which clocks in at ninety eight minutes or so. There's also a shorter CBC version, which is available uh, for free online, called Above the Law, which is about forty three minutes. Um, the film looks at uh, police brutality and accountability issues in Calgary specifically, although. It's important to point out, like, so Calgary Police Service is the depart- department we focus on, but a lot of the sort of bigger accountability issues are provincial, so it's, you know, involves the province. Um, but a lot of the issues that we're looking at by no means are, are restricted or limited to, in fact, I don't think any of them are, re- you know, are limited to Calgary. I mean, they're echoed in, in jurisdictions across the country and beyond, I think, um, you know, so I do think it's quite, uh, quite a, you know, universally applicable in that in that respect and we we focus on there's three main incidents um the first one is a young man by the name of godfrey today Nemiche, who came to canada from ghana um in his late teens and uh basically one night just one thing leads to the other but he was uh, essentially um the legal, you know, seems to be the case that he was kidnapped by um, these uh, one uh, team of officers and given a kind of, uh, many folks might be familiar with the term a starlight tour, which is sort of applied to more in Saskatchewan, uh, but, you know, of, so disgusting. Of, yeah, folks being dropped outside of town. In Godfrey's case, it was, it was actually in the center of town, but in a very isolated and essentially in a huge uh, construction site, a big redevelopment project. And he was dumped there without any winter clothes, um, you know, at almost four in the morning, minus 28 degrees with the, uh, with the wind chill. And, uh, and he had to call, um, you know, things sort of go from bad to worse. He actually had no choice but to call 911 for help. Uh, the phone he had uh, was locked, so he couldn't call a taxi, couldn't call a friend. And uh, the officer who arrived proceeded to uh, taser and, and, and beat him and then charge him with assaulting an officer. So that's <laughs> one of the stories. It's unbelievable. Uh, that was so yeah. heart wrenching. That whole the whole story of that, I feel so bad for that guy, man. For Godfrey, it's uh, Godfrey or God, yeah, Godfrey, right? Godfrey, yeah. Yeah, it's unbelievable that that's so. <sighs> so we should. I mean, we could. It's worth. Yeah. So Godfrey, like, this is really the starting point for us uh, of this film. Was actually was meeting Godfrey. Um, we were introduced to him back in 2015 by his uh, then defense attorney shortly after trial. Uh, he had been charged with assaulting an officer by the officer, one of the officers who it, I think, has subsequently become quite clear very much assaulted him, although he's never been, that officer's never been charged um, for that assault. Um, but I remember Joan Bloomer, who was his defense attorney, saying, um, you know, hey, you should you, maybe you guys want to take a look at this case. Do she was she was, and this is somebody who had spent many years working as a criminal defense attorney in Calgary and has seen just horrible, horrible things. Um, and she just said this was one of the most disturbing stories that she's ever sort of come across was what had happened to this young man. 
Um, wow. So she and, reached out to you guys. Yeah. So the back, I mean, we, uh, you know, I grew up like Joan is, um, was a close family friend growing up. I actually had, uh, if we want to get personal, I had my first ever sleepover <laughs> oh. as a kid. Yeah. Cause I was, you know, we were like family friends with the kids and actually, really? you know, well here the back, you know, the first sleepover, I went over there and I remember it's like 40, you know, like we were, in, we were in the deep South, we were in the Southwest of Canyon Meadows and they were way up in the North and it was like, I must've been like six or something. And, and I was supposed to have my first sleepover and I got too scared. And my dad had to come, he drove like 45 minutes across town <laughs> to come pick me up, you know? Oh, man. You know, life of a dad. That's fine. That happens. That's right. That's right. You're allowed, yeah. first, first or second time, you're allowed to have, you know, cold feet. <laughs> totally. Yeah. That's fair. That's, so that's it. You guys go way back. So she knew, she knew you guys would give it a voice. That's, that's really yeah. good. Yeah. Well, I was always interested, like, in what was, you know, like, I, I would say, like, generally speaking, I'm interested in talking to anybody that knows anything in detail about anything. You know what I mean? Like, somebody yeah. who has expertise, I think you always have something to learn from. Well, let's Tarantino I, this. Let's give us give us a little bit yeah. about your background. How'd you get into filmmaking? So, um, so my partner in crime, uh, Ravinder Uppel, and I we grew up together in Calgary, and from you know really well, especially like Ravinder from a really young age, you know, like we were always into movies, but I was more into the writing side. Um, mm -hmm. Like I was from you know, I was like I'd say a decent you know writer from a younger age, and you know, but Ravinder like was always. Uh, from junior high school, we started to muck around with the camera. And then in high school, like we did a couple projects for school, you know, like I think our first documentary, we went to Henry Wisewood High School in South Calgary. And we were like, it was this, it was Wisewood has 22 minutes, you know, where we went, <laughs> nice. we like, yeah, we went like, nice. yeah, we like interviewed kids in the hallway about like, you know, problems in school. We talked about racism, like we talked about, you know, it was like, that was, nice. you know, we were, we were coming out of the, out of the can, you know, hot there. Um, okay, that's, and then, that's awesome. You guys are ahead yeah, of your time. <laughs> right? So, and then it just kind of went from there. Like, um, I remember in high school seeing, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen the, the NFB documentary, The Corporation, which, oh. which is a, I mean, it's like, it's a bit, you know, it was, this was, it continues to be, I think it's the best selling Canadian, you know, documentary of all time. That was a big influence. It sort of presents the, the corporation as a, as a, it, it does like a psychological analysis of the corporation and basically classifies it as a, as a psychopath. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I would say it took us about 10 years, kind of like after finishing high school to really, what happened is we came up, uh, we moved to Toronto in 2011 and did, uh, there's an MFA, a master of fine arts program at Ryerson in documentary media. So okay. from then, from then we've been, That's we've been on it full time. Yeah. But Doc, I think just, it was sort of like a way, I mean, we've always, I'd say like politically and social justice wise been interested in broadly speaking and in, in justice issues and, um, you know, social issues, environmental issues. So documentary just felt like the sort of perfect form to kind of synthesize different skills and different interests and really being able to, um, to kind of get into it, you know? It's really, it's important to have uh, a creative uh, writing aspect to your approach too, I feel, especially in documentaries, because well i mean just like 2020 showed us real life can be way more exciting and interesting and weird and, and messed up than anything that we can come up with on our own but to give it the color that you need in order to to really paint the important points of it is is it's something that we need and it's 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 really good that we like it, it's it's really good that you guys did it with uh, this story because i feel like his story really does need to come to light oh yeah and it's 
Yeah, I mean it's I mean it's a it's a dense film, right? Like there's a lot going on, there's a lot of information. Um, but I think for you know, like film is a visual medium primarily, but it's also a very textual, like documentary is a very textual medium in terms, especially a film like this. So, um, in terms of the process, I mean it's like we really everything for us starts with like writing like a paper edit, like long before we start you know chopping up the images. I mean we're we're kind of crafting the pieces of the story in, in a written sense. So yeah, it's, it's all part and parcel of, um, it's all, all, I was, all I was thinking about when I was watching it is it's so, it's so smooth. Like just, it's, it's an, an hour and a half. You're sitting for an hour and a half, but you, it's mm. so smoothly going through the, the stories and you're jumping from one to another in such a way that it doesn't, it doesn't leave you confused or, or wondering what's going on either. So you, you have a very, um, smooth, uh, flow of information so you can keep it all together and, and really you know stay in the moment and keep the emotions uh where they need to be as far as understanding the the impact on these families and um, well, it, yeah oh sorry go ahead, sorry, go ahead. no 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 you go oh I, I was gonna say um and in keeping tone with the the three stories uh can you go maybe go into depth and uh, and uh for the second story there yeah, so the second the second story is also um is an assault uh what actually um an aggravated assault, uh, which um, you know, a bit of spoiler alert, but um, <laughs> you know, has been has been established in court as such, although it's still facing appeal. Um, spoiler alert: they're all assaults. They're all assaults. They're all. <laughs> well, it's interesting this language, right? Because, like, for example, uh, the third the third story, which is a, a it's it's a I always describe it as it's a classic wellness check, as in classically tragic, uh, mm-hmm. where it was. Um, a young man, Anthony Heffernan, 27 years old, hadn't checked out of his uh, hotel room on time. And uh, the staff, like, you know, had, was concerned. But, um, you know, I always point out and like, just imagine this was a fancy. So basically, staff was concerned he hadn't checked out on time, ended up calling the police and said, well, we can't, the guy's not responsive or he's not, you know, answering the door or whatever. Police come, end up kicking down the door, five officers go in, and I think it's 72 seconds later, he's dead on the floor with four, four bullets in him, right? Uh, which is just a, it's just a heartbreaking story. And, and again, like, he wasn't hurting anyone. The, the worst so you could say is maybe he was hurting himself, you know? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, yeah, It's so unnecessary. That's, the, that's where the training comes in. Like, it's so, it's so crazy. It's so crazy to me that somebody can have that kind of level of confidence in doing something that's that devastating to someone and that permanent well yeah yeah. and 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 you guys mentioned earlier i mean it's like obviously anthony is no longer with us and i think that's just a a tragedy i mean this was by all accounts a really wonderful person who yes like did struggle with occasionally with uh with drugs but Mm -hmm. um you know but that's nothing to be killed over well that's really the thing is you know um somebody who's uh you know using drugs i mean the notion that the appropriate response would be to uh, to put four bullets in him and leave him dead on a hotel room floor. I mean, I just don't understand that. And I think the ripple effects like that family, like Anthony's parents are retired uh, school teacher and principal from Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. You know, these are, this is sort of like a nice classically, you know, uh, uh, a middle-class white family. This is not who usually has these kinds of deadly run-ins with the police in Canada, which as we know are disproportionately from uh, minority communities uh, disproportionately affects obviously the unhoused um, uh, drug users, uh, but like the ripple effects in this family is just profound. I mean, this is a huge. First of all, it is five siblings in that family, 
Um, but there's this is a huge family, cousins and nephews, you know, every the whole the whole everyone shebang. Affected. Yeah, everyone. Affected. Well, yeah, and it's you know, and you really and like his sister Natalie talked to us in her interview, and the parents, you know, just talked about like how differently, uh, how profoundly this has changed their view of the police and of the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. You know, you go from sort of. Um, like trusting, you know, you know, they're on our side and you can have a reasonable, you know, uh, belief that there's going to be justice and just to, you know, just to, to have those, um, to have those sort of confidences just totally, yeah, well, it's, um, easy. it's easy to have those, it's easy to have those confidences when your only interactions with them is when they wave to you driving by in the neighborhood. <laughs> it's, it's, it's when they pick and choose to, they pick and choose who to, to uphold the law. And so it just, it's, it's just shotgun effect. It's more numbers. Obviously, you pull over 100 minorities and two white people, the odds of the minorities getting the shit end of the stick is higher. Well, totally. Or in this case, like, again, like with, with Anthony, who was, you know, this is a, I mean, not just a white guy, but like a really white guy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, a, like he. A, a picture perfect. White guy. He even did cocaine. <laughs> right? So, and, and, but, you know, there's a, I think there's a class thing going on where, you know, he was, he was in a, this was a, a low, this was a cheap hotel up in the northeast part of the city. Had he been in a, you know, that's like, you know, and having gone and rented exactly the same room, like we went and filmed in exactly the same room. I think it was 47 wow. bucks or something for the night or 54 or something like, like this is a cheap, you know, hotel. Yeah. Um, had, had we been talking about somebody using drugs, as I'm sure happens often at say the Palliser Hotel or a fancy a four or five star hotel downtown Calgary, you think mm-hmm. they would have called the cops to kick it in the door? They just run yeah. the credit card and, you know, put it through for another night. So exactly. um, I have a, I, I cannot conceive of the same thing having happened in a fancy hotel in a Westin or something like that. So, yeah. um, and yeah, even the fact that there was five police officers that came like I, I don't like, no matter how much Coke, even if the purest Coke from Columbia, I don't think he's taking five trained officers. No. So it's, this is it's, actually, it's, it's interesting, right? Because like from a, a, a like perspective for us as civilians, we're like five heavily armed and his parents, right? Talk about this, like five heavily armed officers enter a small hotel room and they have no alternative other than to kill their son. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the claim after the fact, so just in terms of the numbers, so it does seem, and, and the Calgary Police Service, uh, coincidentally or incidentally rather, does not make, they do not uh, make publicly available their policy and procedures manual. Um, we have acquired most of it uh, by various means, uh, freedom of information requests and, and other things. And, um, you know, uh, we are sort of, we've been told by the Calgary Police that they intend to review their policy about printing it online, which, for example, is something that the Vancouver uh, Police Department has. But uh, you know, if not, uh, you may uh, just find it online one day soon anyways, um, which, again, would not be um, would be within our rights to do as it's all public information once it's released. In any case, I bring this up because the five officers entering the room does appear to be basically like the policy in a case like this. Like there's certain terms, you know, it's like, oh, well, if somebody's like this, you have to go in with five people. But you know what the policy doesn't say? It doesn't say that like. When you've kicked in the door and you've gone in the room and you find that there's a guy who's clearly tweaking or having, you know, who's not, well, he's not in his right mind, who's not mm-hmm. responding when you're screaming at him and pointing guns at him and saying, you know, get on the ground or whatever. Again, you can clearly see like he's alive. He's not having a seizure on the floor. He's mm-hmm. not hurting anybody else. You know what the policy doesn't say? Or there's nothing in the policy that says, how about you back out of that room yeah. and 
you know, kind of wait for him to like come around or maybe exactly. talk to him or whatever. Like this notion that the only op option is to go in there like a full frontal assault and just take it through to the bloody conclusion. Um, I just think that's outlandish. And I'll point out, um, uh, if you'll allow me to keep running my mouth here, that as you much know, as you like. Well, one of the things that I've often, or we, you know, I think is really important for us to remember is that, you know, like policing, like you get a lot of this sort of, I, I, I think you see a lot of presentation from police forces in this country. It's just like, well, this is policing and this is our job and this is the policy and this is how we do it. Um, that's actually, I, I think, a, a very dangerous oversimplification. Like policing is not a monolith. It, it's not like there's one way to deal with a crisis situation. There's an excellent film called um, Hold Your Fire, I believe, which was done by the CBC as well, like a few years ago, that showed how uh, police officers in England, how they respond to a situation where, say, somebody has a, a sharp object either on the street or in an apartment, like they have a knife. There's actually this crazy video of, of like quite a big dude out in the street in London somewhere, just like flailing around with a machete. And can you imagine like how quickly that person would be put down in like this oh, part of the world? In a, in a heartbeat. But what do they do over there? They basically like kind of park some cars around him, kind of like yeah. move in slowly, use these like full body shields mm -hmm. um, and just kind of like, you know, push him into sort of a place where eventually like he can't do anything or the same yeah. thing like in, a, in, a, in an apartment. You like in the case of Anthony Heffernan, why don't you go in with the shields and kind mm -hmm. of back him into a corner? And if he's got as they claim, and we don't know whether this is true, but supposedly had a small hypodermic needle in his hand that was proven afterwards not to have a needle tip in it. Unreal. If that is in fact a deadly weapon, you know, back him into a corner and wait for him to calm down. And then, you know, like it's just, there's many That's... ways to do these things and clearly like shooting somebody repeatedly until they're dead is not the only option. You know? No, that, that's what I was thinking when I saw the footage, too, because you show the room, the hotel room in the documentary, and it's a narrow corridor from the doorway to the to the main oh, part yeah. of the room. It's like a it's like a bottleneck. Have you never seen 300? Even if you've seen 300, you know that that's a very tactical spot to have something like all you got to do is you have two shields at most that you'd need in order to to, you know, press him into a situation where, like you said, they could subdue him regardless of if he had a knife, if he had whatever he had, but he only had a syringe that you could at most, you know, hurt somebody with a little bit. Or, like, if it has a disease on it, I guess you could go bio-warfare, but, like, come on. It's 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 unreal that they think that... It's just like that kid that got filled in in Toronto with, with on the bus. The I, I believe he was Lebanese or something. He had a... Sam, like, Sammy a team, yeah. A switchblade or something, a, a little pocket knife or something he had in his hand, and they just decided to open fire on the bus. There's nobody else on the bus. I just, how is I don't how is oh, that yeah. the procedure? And, yeah. Well, and actually, in that that case, that's the Sammy Atim um, Borsillo was, I think, the uh, the shooter in that case. I mean, that's a rare, rare case in Canada. There's very little, you know, where that officer yeah. was actually charged and convicted of yeah. unreasonable force. Um, what's interesting is that in the case of Anthony Heffernan, um, you know, it went to. As you see in the film, it went to ACERT, which is the Alberta Serious Incident Response Team that uh, examines serious incidents, as per their name, involving police officers, and is ostensibly supposed to be an impartial arbiter of uh, policing issues. Whether or not that's the case is a different question. There's a lot of critics that point out that um, ACERT is actually staffed primarily by police officers from the very departments <laughs> that they're investigating. And in fact, in the investigation of Anthony Heffernan, you know, the lead investigator, this guy, Len Manello, 
uh, was a former Calgary police. I think he was a homicide officer there for 30 years or something like that. So the notion that a former Calgary police officer uh, was the one leading this investigation, uh, which according to ACERT is not, you know, that's not, they try not to let that be the case. I mean, obviously the oh, family yeah. has raised issues with that. But in this case, I mean, they, they did recommend to the Crown that criminal charges um, that, you know, be considered. Um, mm -hmm. And the head of ACERT, Susan Houston, is a former herself, a highly experienced former Crown prosecutor. And she uh, told the, the Heffernans, and we actually, there's several uh, recordings in the film, one of a phone call, another of a meeting that have never before been published until this film, uh, in which she tells the Heffernan family that she's going to... Um, uh, you know, indicate to the Crown prosecutors that they should consider charges of uh, up to and including a second degree murder. So that's very strong in the context of police. Very rarely does an officer face even, say, a manslaughter charge, let alone a second degree murder charge. Um, so. It was really it was really sad to see their their hopes up and then just shattered as soon as that. Who was that? The, the guy that's the head of um, ACERT that was above her, the head prosecuting attorney i guess it was that stepped he, in and sidelined yeah him. it's uh, eric tolpanen he was the um uh term was the he was the assistant deputy minister he's actually since been uh he's now been it's a i don't know depending on how you just i i think uh promoted he's a judge so he's now a judge in alberta oh my God, wow. um but he yeah he was the head of the he's the head of the the crown prosecution service who who actually takes the uh report uh, or the advice from ACERT and then, you know, well, actually that's not true. Like in that case, he was the one representing the crown, but it's not necessarily the case. And there's a whole sort of backstory that there's m many questions remain unanswered as to why he was involved in this case. Uh, Cause we know from Susan Houston that it was an entirely different person. Uh, Carrie Ann Downey was the crown prosecutor who was ostensibly going to be in charge of the case. And it seems for reasons that remain to be explained, how it was that the head of the prosecution service, Eric Tilpanen, um, how it was that he came in uh, and was the one actually delivering this decision. That's never, as far as we know, that's never happened before and it's never happened since. Um, it's so and, weird. It was like, a sh it's like they just shuffled stuff around and thought, oh, no, yeah, uh, this guy, I said, uh, you can't do it, so she can't do it. She, it's like she didn't want to take the blame, so they found a way to mitigate the delivery of information and by doing so just kind of like got themselves out of it while it, that's what i hate about it they, they every time they try to uh like not even not even fix or doctor anything but but try to even backtrack and and make reparations for the damage that's done they they just do it up to the point where they can get the credit and then don't follow through with the actual punishment. I, I, I can't believe these people are still on the streets. Allegedly, allegedly. Just oh, well, yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Just well, <laughs> yeah, no, and it's really, I think for the family, it's just like, look, we, you know, we know that, um, uh, you know, Tom Engel, who's a criminal defense attorney in, in Edmonton, who's really been like the one lawyer, now there are others, but for years that in Alberta has been willing to um, sue the police, um, you know, he just points out in the film very convincingly in a number of ways, just the double standards that appear to be at play in terms of, um, you know, how officers are treated before the law um, or in the context of the criminal justice system. Um, yeah, and it's quite disturbing. I mean, there's sort of like a reversal of the, the burden of proof, you know, usually yeah. um, 
you know, usually like if you or I or we, you know, one of us goes out and, and puts bullets in somebody, you would think that the burden would be on us to mm -hmm. demonstrate that that was a, uh, a case of self-defense, if that's the claim, right? Yeah. Um, now, in the context of the Anthony Heffernan shooting, the Crown said that they, they were not going to prosecute. So despite the recommendation from ACERT <laughs> that there were, re this is, I'm trying to get the language right here. There were reasonable grounds to believe that a crime or crimes had been committed, right? Mm -hmm. That's how they have to frame it for their purposes. Then the Crown basically declined to prosecute, citing a low likelihood of conviction. So they didn't think that they would be able to get a conviction. And the reason given is that they did not think that they could disprove that the officer, Constable Maurice McLaughlin, who shot and killed Anthony Heffernan, they did not think that they could disprove that he feared for his life. Um, which because it's such a gray area that is it's almost impossible to prove definitely without a shadow of a doubt well and that's really what the family has said is like okay fine like you know we have a very complicated situation in the sense that there was no cameras uh, our son is dead so he can't speak for himself and the only people that were in the room were five police officers and whether or not we can you know, reason like whether or not how how much confidence you have in the testimony of an officer against another officer, fine. Mm -hmm. But put that aside. But you know, like why don't we why don't we like why don't you prosecute this and see what the judge or a jury has to say about what is and is not reasonable, right? No. Yeah, absolutely. And I I, I don't know if they because they didn't address very many um, details obviously of the case uh, during the film. Uh, as far as like the court proceedings, um, but mm -hmm. well, because there was no, it didn't really go to court. Obviously, well, there was no yeah, there was trial, no, yeah. yeah, there was no trial, so there was there was no real presentation of evidence. But did they have? Did they even consider the evidence that you guys went back and addressed afterwards about when he, um, can, when he, what, well, what he had said that he had looked through, looking the through the cracked door. door, yeah. Uh, no, no, they do not. And we've read, you know, I mean, albeit it's redacted, but we've obviously read very closely the ACERT report. And the ACERT report, part of what I find so disturbing, and, and you know, Tom Engel criticizes quite strongly the investigation of, of ACERT. There's a number of things that are disturbing. One of them, for example, is that ACERT does not have its own forensics unit. So it was the <laughs> Calgary Police Service forensics unit that's oh examining God. the scene. And again, it's just like, wait a minute, like you feel the need to have ACERT because you can't trust this police agency to police or investigate themselves. And yet, like the people that That's are handling the evidence are from the same department. Like, what's that all about? Um, it's so backwards. It's so crazy. Is it, isn't well, there a, isn't, aren't we supposed to have checks and balances for that kind of thing? Well, and that's really the question, right? Is like, I think we, a lot of us, like in good faith, we make presumptions about mm -hmm. the functionality and the efficacy of the checks and balances, so to speak, in our system. And for us, a big part of this process has been just being disturbed by how frail um, and how in, uh, <laughs> unequally applied those checks and balances seem to be. Mm -hmm. um, so, but in terms of that question of being able to, so the whole reason, the justification given for entering uh, Anthony Heffernan's room was that one officer, which we can deduce, again, it's redacted, but we can deduce from a number of factors and be quite confident, um, was in fact Maurice McLaughlin, who had had a prior encounter, mind you, with Anthony Heffernan, um, oh. in which, uh, and part of it is that he, you know, and there's, I could say that there's a number of issues too in terms of what he appears to have communicated to the other police officers that I think 
Um, and this is, you know, uh, the family has also identified this, seems to have created an atmosphere of fear going in. You know, there'd been some mention of like, oh, well, in the past when we dealt with them, there had also been, there'd been needles, like there's going to be needles in there, sort of creating this notion of like, oh, this is a dangerous situation. So we're going already. Correct. But he claims to have been able to see Anthony, um, you know, uh, acting agitated and, and the like um, yeah, in the room. In his mind, he saw him in his mind's eye, I guess. Well, it's really, it's a really, again, and, and Susan Houston, because uh, we, so the whole thing is we went, so we went, so that the, the Heffernan family insisted, they said, you have to go to this hotel room, you have to see for yourself uh, the size of the room, the layout of it, uh, and you have to see this door, this whole issue, this whole uh, explanation given by this officer that he could see him in the room. Uh, I mean, it's a physical impossibility. You can't like see into the main part of the room. You can see this very narrow little bit there, kind of where the coffee machine is or whatever, like by the bathroom. But that doesn't actually, that doesn't match the description the that wall. was given, right? And all the other officers in their statements in terms of the report, they're clearly relying and saying, oh, well, officer such and such, this, this other officer who we, I think, can presume to be McLaughlin, you know, said that, uh, you know, well, he could see him in the room. None of the other officers says, oh, yeah, I also took a look. Because, like, if you were showing up and you're about to kick in a door and go in and, and potentially, you know, as in we saw, kill somebody, yeah. um, Maybe like another, maybe the sergeant on the scene might have taken a look in the door and see and see if he could see what he saw. Like if it's necessary or something, yeah. Well, and again, it's not like they showed up and just kicked in the door immediately. Like a fair bit of time passed where they get like permission and they're calling and they're talking EMS and you know, so it's not like it was like a hastily made thing decision in thirteen seconds. You know Jesus. what I mean? So and that was still the only result they could come up with. Apparently, man, it's. Uh, it's really tough and it's uh it's just not uh, uh you know there's a whole number of issues too to do with like you know like a police officer like according to some of these people it's just like well what constitutes a deadly deadly weapon is like a pencil a deadly weapon technically a if pencil is wick. pointy yeah if you're john wick exactly or that scene <laughs> in, in glorious bastards yeah sure you can kill somebody with a pencil so are you trying to tell me that if Somebody is having a, a mental health episode and they're on the street running around with a pencil mm -hmm. and they don't put the pencil down when you scream at them and tell them to put the pencil down that that's, you know, that that's yeah. a that's a deadly weapon, you know, that you're going to take it's... a deadly action against them. Come now. Yeah, I know. Right. It's very it, you can't that level of subjectivity is is absurd when you're you can't have that level of standard. That's what it, like that comes back to the standards like these cops should be. OK, well, you should have a minimum anxiety level threshold that you need to be able to handle without taking physical action before you can be a cop. That should be a minimum requirement. And well, even, um, oh, yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, you go, you go for it. Okay, I was, I was uh, honestly thinking about um, even the whole thing of like, he felt that his life was in danger. That that sentence within itself is so flawed because like, there's women I've dated that like, when they see a spider, they feel like their life is in danger, right? So <laughs> these things are all, <laughs> right? Yeah, so it's these in your head, bro. Subject to the person the thing is though he had actually... a gun well not not and not only did he so i mean if you look at it it's 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 so disturbing in so many ways okay so there's five officers go in right one of whom is a sergeant now constable mclaughlin is one of the constables so of the officers they go in and there's a mix of like tasers so two tasers were shot at anthony uh one of them clearly had a, a, a result because according to the officers you know he fell back on the bed and sort of flailed. Some of them claim that he was like, you know, 
trying intentionally to remove the prongs, which like maybe he was like, I, I don't know if you were being tasered and that hurts like a motherfucker, you know, like you'd probably yeah. want to take yeah, it out. Like, so couldn't you blame him? Um, but maybe again, it's all like, there's a lot of editorializing in terms of yeah, like what was and wasn't happening. Um, but what we know from the description is that of the, like the sergeant at no point did the sergeant, who's the one who's supposed to be in charge of the situation say, okay, light him up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that yeah. didn't happen. And in fact, that at least, uh, I think the two officers who were closest to him, this is sort of trying to put together the pieces from what, you know, the redacted report, they seem to have put away their weapons and with the intention of just grabbing Anthony. Because again, you're, you're in this little hotel room. It's just like anyone who stayed in a shitty, uh, two, like a double bed, two bed you know, hotel room, you know exactly what this thing looks like, right? Yeah. Um, like they had put away their weapons just to grab him. And it's only at that point in time that McLaughlin fires. And, and one of the cops talks about how he was so close, like, you know, it was sort of like right next to him that this gun was fired. Like the officer, he could have he could have shot. He could have shot quite possibly any of his other um, his peers there. So not only did he kill this person, it, you would uh, it's, it's hard to imagine that this was necessary. Um, and again, it was never it was never charged. So we don't know. It's like he wasn't acquitted. He was just never charged. Um, but he could have, you know, injured, you know, or shot or killed one of his. And not only that, but. We know one of the bullets from the gun. So, and I've been in the room, like you can sort of see, like somehow he shot through the wall into the other room. Jeez. And thankfully nobody was in the other room, but he could have, he could have shot somebody in the other room. But it's also like, that's like the opposite direction of where Anthony was. So it's like the way Tom Engel describes it, it's like, this is clearly some wild shooting. So yeah, he shoots through the wall. And, and then as Anthony is falling dead to the ground, he continues to shoot and shot into the floor. So he literally, as the guy is, like, I don't know how else, like, physically it could be, but as he's dead on the ground, he shoots again into the floor. So it's just like, if that's not overkill, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's, in the most that's, literal. That's, literal that's, that's like Call of Duty level. Like, relax. That's insane. He's just wild firing. If the two other officers don't feel threatened oh, enough and they can put their weapons away, how are you shooting? Well, four of them hit him, right? I guess four of them hit him and then one hit yeah. the wall? Or was it one of the four that hit him that also hit the wall? No, it's four. I think it's six bullets total. One hit the wall, four hit him, and one missed him entirely and went into oh the floor. Oh my god! Six rounds, right? Six and this is the thing: rounds. is like you know, like you know, and, and this is what you know. Aunt, uh, Pat Heffern and the father, like these, you know, these, these these folks are from an acreage, right? Like they live out in the country. Like they hunt, you know. Like they, you know, like they're not they're not yeah. strangers to guns, and. And he, he just describes, he's like, how do you know, to just keep firing, like what a coward, you know, that mm -hmm. you just keep firing um, mm -hmm. to somebody who is, again, who is, uh, it, we don't know, uh, but seems to have been, well, by definition, we know was unarmed because at the very worst, you could say that he had a syringe without a needle tip in his hand. So he was unarmed, which begs, this, begs the whole question too, like basically police officers seem to be, and this is a classic example saying like, oh, well, I thought there was a needle tip. Right. Yeah. And it's like, well, so what if there was a needle tip? It's a little one centimeter diabetic like needle tip. And it's like, oh, well, you know, drug drug users are at a high uh, and I'm using, you know, drug, I'm sure that wouldn't be you know, a drug addicts or whatever. But drug users are at a high risk of having bloodborne diseases like, yeah. OK, so like hep C, even HIV, which nowadays, again, these are all curable um you know, infirmities, especially if you if you are exposed, there's various sort of prophylaxis. So it's like basically saying like your fear that maybe there's some sort of bloodborne illness that maybe you could get like that. That is worth so much than yeah. the life of one of the people that you're protecting. Yeah. You know what I mean? 
It's interesting yeah. they didn't just use like a blanket because I was thinking like why didn't they just use a blanket wrap them up? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like real well, there's a thousand there's a, and, and there's a thousand or ways, yeah. there's a thousand ways. And remember in the film, like you see the parents go to the thing, you know, and and Pat says, well, you know, well what like why couldn't you hit him with a baton or yeah. something? Right, like, like, hurt him, hurt. It's fine, hurt him. That's fine. I know you got to do your job. Yeah, but, quick, like, exactly. Like, there's a limit still. You, that's not the first resort. It's not. You don't draw the gun. That's not the first thing. That's why you have the gun. It's because you don't need to use it. A hundred percent. And I think I have. I mean, I believe that. You know that I think that people sort of behave. You know, like certain people will behave poorly if they can get away with it. Right. Yeah. Like Absolutely. certain people will think like, okay, like I got a fast car. I think it's fun to go fast and I'm going to go whatever. Like I'm going to go drive 200 kilometers or whatever, you know, and occasionally mm-hmm. like, you know, people, somebody gets caught. Like I saw a story, some kid, you know, is like, oh, you're busted. And like your life, I presume is going to be pretty screwed up and there's consequences. And I presume that other people would see that and be like, okay, well, I'm not going to do the same thing because there's consequences. Yeah. But I think when we see these instances like this where, you know, this, and I'm not saying there aren't like, I, from what I understand, I think this, you know, officer was like disturbed by this incident. Like, I don't imagine he went home thinking like, or maybe he did, you know what? I don't know. But yeah, the long and the yeah. short of it is that I think that if officers actually think like, Hey, if I like shoot somebody or if I beat somebody or if I put somebody in my van and drive them and dump them in the cold and as a punishment or because they were lipping me off or whatever the excuse, what reason is. If they actually believe that there's going to be consequences for those actions, I think they're a lot less likely to do it. Exactly. Wouldn't you say? Wouldn't Absolutely. you say that there's things that you don't do because yeah. you know that there might be consequences? Hundred percent. You know, that's the thing. They're just fueling the fire. They're making it worse just by not reprimanding the the people that they need to reprimand. Well, absolutely. And I think, and the other thing too is like, you know, this current system where you have people getting away, like officers. Um, it's. I, I really think that there's. For let's let's say broadly speaking, you know the the good officers, the ones who are trying to like, you know, respect people and do their job. Like I don't doubt that that's the case. We can again, we can talk about the flaws inherently with policing as an institution. Um, but for those that are like, you know, I, I presume decent people that are trying to do, you know, a good job. Like I think it's really really disturbing to them for to sure. have officers like the ones we see in the film, like Constable Trevor Lindsay, uh, repeatedly uh, abusing people. It would seem or mclaughlin for them to behave like this and for there not to be um accountability you know like we yeah i mean we've had i've had a number of conversations with uh current former officers we've had people write to us um you know i mean believe you me i've had the fair share of uh, people write and say you know what you know why you know why you um you know mind you mind your own fucking business you know keep your nose out of this well you know i've had lots of that also had people you know we had this amazing um you know, uh, uh, like officers uh, communicating support and just clearly are very disturbed by the behavior of their colleagues. Because just imagine, like, if you're trying to do your job properly mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, and you have people behaving like this, that's just not, and, and, you know, and we see it reflected in the morale. So the Calgary Police Service and uh, is the one, obviously, we've looked at most closely. But they have done longitudinal studies where they sort of track, they do surveys every year and ask their employees, like, oh, okay, like how... You know, on a scale from one to ten, blah blah blah. How are you feeling about this, that, and the other? And the morale of, of the Calgary Police Service has just plummeted. You know, in recent sure. years, it's just plummeted because, again, it's like, you know, it's like clear. You know, nobody like the current situation. The current system as it's functioning is not serving the public, I don't think, and it's not serving the, the police officers themselves. 
you know? Well, you, you see it. You actually illustrate it very well in the film. Where I, I don't recall the, the woman's name. That poor woman that was uh, 14 years on the force and all the oh, uh, garbage, the bullshit. Uh, yeah, Jennifer Magnus. Isn't, that, isn't that... Oh, man. Right? Isn't that just the, heartbreaking? Yeah. The bullshit that she had to go through. And even she even tried, you know, like you could tell that she tried. She tried to get along, but it's it, the toll that it took on her and her family. And that was like, the, there's no... There's no boundary to who they can hurt, you know? It's not just civilians that they can hurt. It's not just minorities they can hurt. It's not just addicts or whatever, what have you, the person that you're not going to identify with. They're hurting their own. They're their own cops just because of they, of like, some of them have this attitude that they get to do whatever they want, and it's pressed through the whole culture. It's weird. Even the good ones get swept away with it. Yeah, they get oh, wrapped yeah. up in, like, a god complex. Like yeah, they right. are the decider. Um, speaking of that, um, maybe Mark, you can talk about that that uh, the tertiary story uh, with the young gentleman. Uh, which one, Howard or Godfrey uh, yeah, or the, yeah, the final Clayton story. Prince? Oh, the, um, oh, Daniel Howard, who is uh, with the parking lot. Yeah, yeah, that was insane. So okay, so this is just to give a bit of context. So like, so we first met Godfrey and started to like you know, investigate his case back in mid 2015. Okay. So a year and a half later in early 2017, uh, it's the Calgary police service announces that one of their officers is being charged with aggravated assault. And of course, by this point in time, we had started to, and this, this is really when we started to take like a bigger look at the department writ large. Um, cause again, it's very unusual for somebody to face uh, an officer to face a serious charge like that. Um, and but one of the things that was notable is that when it first came out in the news, the first press conference, uh, and we see this in the film, uh, it was asked, well, why isn't the char- Why isn't the officer being named? Because at that time, under former chief Roger Chaffin, um, and this is, you know, he was pursuing a policy of naming police officers who are charged um, with uh, with crimes. Mm-hmm. And which is in line with sort of like general sort of reform, modernizing policing policies across the country and beyond. And in that case, for some reason, they were not naming the officer. And so the reporter says, well, why aren't you naming him? Is this because of a domestic incident? Right. Because ostensibly, like if somebody is that was sort of the, the bounds, like if it's a domestic incident, although why that would be any different, I don't know. Maybe to protect the victim, like if, if uh, and apparently the rates of spousal abuse are much higher than the average among police officers. That's a whole other side of things. Um, But in any case, in this case, they didn't name the officer and it came out, it was leaked a few days later that the officer was, drum roll, Constable Trevor Lindsay, the same, there you go, the same, um, sorry, I didn't didn't allow for the dramatic pause, you know? All right, you ready? So, drum roll. (laughs) It was, it was Constable Trevor Lindsay, the same officer that had uh, also been had had also uh, been caught, you know, um, on camera, as it turns out, assaulting Godfrey Adai Namiche, a young guy from Ghana that we talked about er- earlier in the episode. Um, Unreal. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, clearly a habitual line stepper. Well, and 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 that really that when that revelation came out, it made us be like, wait a minute, we need to take a look at how exactly is the complaint process being handled because we know that Godfrey. Uh, had filed a formal complaint, a very, I, I think an incredibly serious complaint that wasn't just uh, about the behavior of Constable Trevor Lindsay, but about the officers 
uh, beforehand and actually after it's many different officers involved in, in, in this treatment of him. Uh, but he had filed that formal complaint in January 2014. So the Haworth incident took place a year and a half later, uh, actually a couple weeks before Godfrey's trial, which meant that Lindsay had committed this aggravated assault. And then now that he's subsequently been convicted of, so we can say that. Uh, and then, uh, you know, he goes in a couple weeks later and is telling his yarns about, um, you know, about what had happened with Godfrey. Um, but, you know, and they just for us, we're for like... It. Well, and yeah, and it's just like, well, if he had complained about this officer, like how, how is this officer um, allowed to be out on the street? And, you know, Godfrey points it out in the film, you know, it's like, well, why, you know, like what's going on here? You know, here I am. It's like, I'm a young black guy. This guy does this to me, is caught on video doing it, no mm -hmm. charges. Then he uh, does something sort of generally speaking similar to another guy, in that case, a white guy, and there's charges. So obviously like, you know, Godfrey, um, you know, was looking at this and asking questions about, well, is there a reason why he was charged in the one incident and not the other one? Because it seems, you know, and many people have observed, it seems like pretty, pretty similar. But even beyond that, uh, like, why was it that if this officer, like, why was he still out on the street doing like regular beat duty? Like if there had been a serious, like clearly they're not taking the complaint seriously yeah. if they just let the guy keep going, doing what he's doing, you know? Yeah, if they would have taken and, it seriously, he, he might've turned out a little different. Well, and as Godfrey said, like the whole thing is, you know, that they're in the end, a um, lot of spoilers here, but, uh, you know, <laughs> we have, but yeah, in the there's, end, there's you know, a lot of spoilers, unfortunately, but, <laughs> but it's okay. I mean, there's so much there. It's like, uh, yeah, it, you can look up the, the, the news articles and I'm sure there'll be spoilers in that regard oh, totally. as well. But, but the way you guys, the way you guys draw it up, it's very, it's, it's much easier to follow. You guys present a lot of information in a very concise way. And um, it'd be worth it. Anybody who's interested in the story should definitely check out the, the, the full documentary when it's available. But we'll uh, at least have the, the, uh, the shorter version um, available for, on the platforms that we have those. So yeah, we can, we can post the, the CBC link, right? Yeah. Totally. Oh, 100%. Yeah, okay. yeah. Awesome, awesome. And it's, I, I feel like I'm glad that you uh, brought that up, Biggs, because um, the, that whole timeline of about a year passing between this complaint never being addressed that was like you said caught on camera and then the situation that resulted in a, in a in a very serious situation with the same officer i feel i couldn't help but feel like the people that would be the most heartbroken by these types of stories are the ones who let's say um if you go far enough back where DNA evidence and fingerprint evidence wasn't available, but were just convicted based on an officer's report, like mm. those falsely accused and held for sometimes months or years before they're even at a trial, and then they face a trial and there's no real evidence to keep them, but they are still serving time until whatever many years down the road that it turns out that they didn't even do it. This guy was out still doing his job with the ability to hurt other people when he should have been getting investigated. The, the double standard in, in, in how just being able to just get away with it and not even be at, like he should have been under a microscope at the very, very, very least from the complaint. I mean, you would certainly think so. You know, you would think that it would because, again, it's like there's just not that many. Like, if you look at the stats, like, I think that um, very few people who have negative interactions with the police actually, especially because so many people are, are, are so marginalized. Again, we're dealing with the unhoused, we're dealing with, 
people who are criminalized in different ways, whether it be through sex trade or uh, drug use or whatever, like very few people do what Godfrey did. And it takes a lot of courage to do it and actually file like a formal complaint that mm-hmm. says, you know, you have to relive the trauma. And it's like, well, this is the stuff that happened to me. I want this because and if you actually like pursue it, you know, like you have to go and there's sort of like a whole parallel legal system in which you have to go and then, you know, testify uh, of a sort, you know, about what happened. So it's not a simple project, you know, so, so you would think that in the few cases where somebody is actually serious about it, yeah. um, that that would be that would be taken seriously. But yeah, the complaint handling process, and it's not particular to Calgary, but Calgary is really bad, um, is, is just a major, major flaw in the accountability um, system, because clearly what's happening is officers are, um, are falling through the cracks. And just as so just to, in brass tacks, like, what does that actually look like? Well, a few things are happening. So Godfrey files, the incident happens at, in December 2013, files a complaint a month later in January 2014. So here we are uh, in uh, 20, now we're in 2021, but as of, as of um, fall 2020, uh, that complaint had still not been resolved, right? So you're talking years and years and years are going by here. And what actually happened is that Constable Trevor Lindsay um, uh, resigned from the Calgary Police Service. And what does that do? It all the all the whole process, all the work that's gone into, I presume there's been work that's gone into it, you know, investigating this guy, it all just disappears in an instant because the police department no longer has any jurisdiction. Now, on the one hand, you might be like, okay, well, that's fair. He's no longer an officer, so why should they have jurisdiction? Well, I'll tell you this. Many people have pointed out, if you're in a different profession, like, say, a doctor or a lawyer or uh, a nurse or a teacher, like, it doesn't matter if you quit. If you you have a bar complaint going on against you or whatever, it doesn't matter if you quit. You know, like, that complaint still needs to be dealt with. Like, you know, otherwise, like, what is this? I mean, this is a system without any teeth whatsoever. Um, and, and again, you can face criminal charges, right? If you're in one of those other professions. Oh yeah. And you can also face criminal. I mean, this is the thing is the the professional standards investigations that we're talking about are in lieu of criminal charges because essentially, well, there, the crown has, we don't know, and there's not a lot of transparency in terms of what happens when, but presumably the crown has, you know, and could still technically, my understanding is the Crown could still wake up one day and be like, hey, let's do the right thing for a change. Let's actually charge this officer criminally for what he did to Godfrey. Mm-hmm. Um, they could do that, but in lieu of that, there's, so everything is guided by, at least in Alberta, there's the Alberta Police Act. And that's what the, uh, is being investigated by say the professional standards section is they're looking at like, is this a dereliction of duty? Is it negligence? Whatever it is. And, and, the, and the results theoretically could be fairly severe. Oftentimes they just manifest in like, oh, you're docked, you know, a week's worth of pay or you, you know, you have to do, I don't know. Like they don't tend to be, at least from my perspective, very serious. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not, but, they're, you know. they're not real punishments. They're just, you know, band-aids slaps on the wrist. Well, again, if you go out and you, uh, as in the case of, um, well, and we still don't know. So the second case you had asked about that, Constable Trevor uh, Lindsay was involved in is this assault of uh, Daniel Haworth. So Daniel Haworth, uh, and we should point out for both people that Godfrey, both when he was uh, he was tasered and then when he was he was dragged through the snow by the handcuffs, uh, and then and we see this. And the only reason why we know this for sure is because of the video. Because otherwise, from the you know the criminal justice side, it would just be 
Godfrey's story against the story of the police officer, and we know sort of what that balance of yeah. like how much the how the court treats the testimony of a police officer versus how they treat the testimony of a of a, a, a guy, let alone a young black guy. I mean, that's a whole different yeah. you know issue. Um, but you know, we, so there's videos, so we know that. And then in this other instance, you know, here you have another guy in handcuffs, and uh, Trevor Lindsay, you know, repeatedly punches him in the back of the head and throws him headfirst uh, into the into the asphalt. Um, and so uh, you know, and left him with a with a brain bleed and, and permanent uh, brain injury. You know, it's it's really yeah, it's a really horrendous. Uh, it's, it's a very very disturbing video. But again, the only reason I think we can be fairly confident that he was charged is because of that video. Because yeah. interestingly, and having sat through the eight days of trial that it took for to uh, you know to arrive at this, uh, Ravinder and I, you know, we spent we were the only other than. Uh, you know, the lawyers, I think we were the only ones and then a couple of reporters in Calgary that, you know, were there for the whole trial. Um, you know, like there's uh, just so many, so many different things going on there. But essentially, like what came out in trial is that Constable Lindsay, he neglected, for example, as per the testimony of his supervising officer. When the officer arrived, he didn't tell him about those punches, you know, uh, mm-hmm. like he, you know, didn't do that. And he also didn't record it in his notes. Um, so the whole sort of like the broader context, because uh, that's really in the judgment of the of the of the judge is where things went went sour, right? Was this you know punching him in the back of the head um, was 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 the initial thing that wasn't reasonable, right? Because he's anyways. There's a whole explanation in the film, and but yeah. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, I know it's 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 difficult to not get into the like the nitty gritty of it. The nitty gritty, yeah. Yeah, it's so it's because it's so. It, you you feel it, you know. If you've had, if you've ever had an interaction with a cop where it just looks different, you know what? I even had an interaction with a cop where this is this is how you know that thing about the us versus them is is a hundred percent in existence, at least in their mind. There was an incident on uh, Halloween, several Halloweens back, um, what back you know pre COVID and and when I used to go out, <laughs> when um, I, I had been dressed up as Zorro <laughs> in a club district here in Hamilton. But um, an incident had happened, and it happened right in front of me. And I was trying to assist the cops because they were turning their attention on the wrong guy and were trying to arrest a guy and a girl that were defending themselves. So right. I was, from a distance, just trying to let them know like who they need to pay attention to because they were going to get away. Right, and they're waste they're wasting the time on the wrong guy, basically. So I was I was trying to help in that manner, and I almost got in an altercation. The the cop literally grabbed me by my collar and ripped me back, just because I know there's their standard procedure is whatever. If you're, you know, you're an enemy, we don't know if you're a threat or not. But I had my hands up. I'm telling you, I was like, I was five to ten feet away, easily, easily, and with my hands up and just trying to talk towards him. You know, because I know he's busy doing his thing. But after that, he even comes and just gives me a half-assed, not even, it's not an apology. Obviously, he didn't want to admit guilt. But um, if it wasn't for my buddy pulling me away, literally picking me up by, like, bear-hugging me and picking me up and turning me away, I'm sure it would have gotten a lot uglier even for me, even though my initial intent was to try to, you know, help them out and at least get the right guy. Like, it was, it was a bouncer that assaulted a girl. And mm-hmm. who had like literally followed a couple out from the bar, assaulted the girl when he when the guy was refusing to try to fight him, 
And then the guy came around and hit the bouncer, and that's all the, the cops saw, so they attacked the one guy the bouncer was getting away. So it was just a simple, that's the wrong guy, that's the guy. And then I almost got involved. God knows what could have happened to me, because I have a mask on. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's, it's it, their confrontational approach is, it, it, it's asking for trouble. And obviously in a place like um, what we saw in the film, in a place like Calgary where they have a little more, um, I guess, pull when it comes to the, to the back end, like they're not they're not really being addressed the issues out there it seems it, it seems that keeping that sort of mentality or promoting that mentality and i hate that this all this stuff happened now in 2020 and it's even more divisive now it's it, it makes it very difficult to have like an understanding or a real reform without it getting much worse with a lot of people losing their jobs or people getting hurt I, I do think yeah. that there needs to be a bigger focus on um, on like um, mental health for the police officers because like if, if I'm going to play devil's advocate like seeing a lot of fucked up shit all the time is going to fuck you up right for sure and, and I think like just being in a lot of uh, life and death situations um, like just like on a regular basis I feel like that might even just skew your judgment when it comes to like a regular situation because you're so used yeah. to that high intensity right yeah well, it's, you know, and again, I think this goes, you know, it's funny, like, there are a lot of, um, you know, like, we all watch movies and TV shows, and we have these certain, um, you know, these, these images of, like, what policing involves, and, you know, it's like, we have this, this notion, like, or whatever, I, you know, like, I, I'll admit, like, I'm a, like, I love detective shows, you know, <laughs> like, I love, like, and, and it's ironic, because I have a really, um, I would say at this point, like, negative based on being fairly well-informed uh, view of many aspects of, of policing, at least in this society. Um, but, you know, we always went, oh, well, like, of course, you know, you know that bit in Big Lebowski when he's like, you know, he goes to get his car back, right? And he's like, yeah. well, are there any leads? You know, and Cheech is like, Cheech is like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're like, you know, we're putting together the clues, you know, we're following up on the leads, you know, yeah, yeah, and I, yeah. but I, I mean, it's funny, but I'll tell you what's disturbing is so the charge against Godfrey, so the charge against Godfrey for assaulting a peace officer, you know what the, the grand total of the investigative summary was in that case? It's a blank sheet of paper with one line. It says that Constable Trevor Lindsay can testify to having been assaulted by the officer, right? There was no broader, they didn't look at the video, they didn't say, well, wait a minute, like, how did Godfrey get here? Like, what was the context? What was the conversation with 911? They didn't even apparently listen, as far as I can tell, to the 911 call in which you can very clearly hear Constable Trevor Lindsay getting out of his car, contrary to his own testimony, in which he clears to very clearly have perjured himself and not ever been held to account for it, gets out of the car and, and says, don't you fucking, first of all, so he swears it, I mean, testified that he didn't swear, don't you fucking, and then the show, and then the, the call yep. cuts off. Like, he's coming in clearly very aggressively. And what is all of that? What does it do? Oh, it matches Godfrey's story very closely, right? But none of that was included in this investigation, which, again, one line, um, you know. So even, even, even his the confrontational nature of the woman taking the call when he said, as soon as he mentioned, like you can hear her flip, her attitude flips as soon as she, as soon as uh, Godfrey mentions that it was police officers that dropped him off. It's like she knew the situation right away and was just like, "All right, yeah, yeah, calm down, stop swearing, blah blah blah." Well, so, yeah, and it's 
And it's really, you know, because like, again, in a perfect world, again, there's a few things going on here, right? So basically like Godfrey calls 911 and, and he's clearly, he's clearly in distress and look, and like, yeah, in a perfect world, every time you're in panic, you're going to call 911 and you're going to say in perfectly unaccented English, uh, with total clarity, you're going to say, hi, 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 hi. I'm calling because, you know, I'm in a problem and I need help pretty please, you know? Like this is somebody who's, you know. You gotta call the cops, put on your white man voice. (laughs) Yeah, put on your white man voice, exactly. uh, You know, uh, exactly, yeah, you know, get get, get your voice together, you know, that whole thing. And and it's, but you know, the reality is like, this is somebody in crisis, but again, like Godfrey could have been somebody uh, having uh, a mental health crisis, you know? Like to me, it's the job. Of, of somebody on the other line, like, hey, you know, it's it's 3.48 a.m., you know? Like, I'm sure you've got a lot of other calls coming in, you know? Like, yeah. even if the person is rude and he's upset, like, don't you think it's, like, worth it to, like, find whether what's going on here and figure it out? And don't you think, like, maybe instead of just, like, being so dismissive about what this person is saying because they're upset, like, maybe they're upset for a reason, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I would love, like, you know, like, I would love for that to be, like, the, the handbook policy of the EMS, uh, so it's actually not the police department, like at least in Calgary, it's run by the city. So you first, you call and it's like, what do you need? Do you need fire? Do you need police or whatever? But then even if you need police, it's still like going to the city. It's not going to the police per se, but I would love for their handbook to be like, hey, if somebody calls up and says, I'm in a bad situation because I was mistreated in some way by the police or say, hey, it's it's really cold outside because we're in the dead of Calgary winter and I'm outside and I need help. How about you don't hang up the phone on them? Even right? if they swear at you, even if they're upset, you know what I mean? Even if you're, even if you're selling newspapers, you're not allowed to hang up on them. You think if you're in charge of their safety, you're allowed to hang up on them? That's ridiculous. Oh man. I just, you know, I think it's really, it's really dangerous and it's really unfortunate. And again, it's just like, you know, it's uh, pathetic, man. well, you know, and we've just seen like, you know, there's so many, it's like, yeah, it's hard to even like know where to start. And this is part of like why this case is so explosive to us. Um, and we're actually, we're working on a, you know, this, this whole project before this became a film, we'd actually, cause we have a background doing like web, web documentaries as well. Um, and this had all started with like, what was, you know, going to be an interactive piece, totally focused just on Godfrey's story. That's like a deep dive into the legal side of things and the trial and really like a detailed analysis of everything that happened. So we're still working on that. We'll see what happens. And we've, we're, we're calling it an interactive visual podcast. So it'll actually be sort of like oh, a. A, a podcast like you, you you would consume it on a computer but it's really designed for like a phone and you're listening to sort of you're listening but instead there's there's visuals to go with it so it'll be sort of an experimental kind of thing but man godfrey's case i i continue to think there's so many points at which things went wrong in which the system uh failed him and it's just it's very very lucky a that like he wasn't uh yeah. Like, man, that guy's got some great blood circulation because I can guarantee you, you dump me out minus 28 degree wind chill in a tracksuit and sneakers. Yeah. Man, yeah. I'm going to get some serious, serious frostbite, you know, because I got beat the shit out of him and then beat the shit out of him. Like, man, it's just like, and, and you know, Godfrey, like, I, you know, we know him really well at this point in time. Like, this is just like, this is, first of all, he is a little dude. Okay. Like, not, I mean, he's, you know, but he's like five, you know, five, six or whatever. Like, and he's like, he's like, he, you know, he's wired, you know, like he's got a good tone. Don't get me wrong. Like Godfrey mm-hmm. the fit, you know, but like, he's not compared to the officers that he's dealing with, you know, yeah. like compared yeah. to Lindsay, Supposedly. you know, this yeah. is a, a much smaller guy. And it's just like, and he's, and he's so gentle. He's just, no, he doesn't have an aggressive bone in his body. You know what I mean? You can um, tell from how he talks too. He seems very, very like calm and, and 
composed, you know? It doesn't seem yeah. like... Even in the phone call, he wasn't that irate. I would be way more fuming if a couple cops just dropped me off in the middle of nowhere. Are you kidding? That, I would be I would be fuming. I would blow everyone's... I'd start looking up, Googling mayor's phone number. I don't know who I'd call. I would, I would, I would lose my mind. Well, and this is, this is the thing, right? It's like, you know, can you imagine? So you're in this circumstance. So like the story, like you've just been... Uh, so the whole, like, the backstory just for the audience who doesn't know is that Gottfried had been chilling at home and he gets a call from his buddy that says, hey, we're at a house party. Uh, can you come over and drive us home? And the friend who worked in the oil patch uh, had, like, a nice car. as a BMW, right? So I guess mm-hmm. he's, like, he didn't want to leave it, you know, in what was sort of a rougher part of town or something. I don't know. Like, that was sort of, whatever, like, the, whatever the context is. The point is he goes and does this guy a favor, drives him and these other drunk guys, you know, driving them back. And this is the middle of Calgary winter on a curve in the road and, and Godfrey's a good, he was actually working like as a driver, like he was driving truck and stuff at this point in time. So this is not like somebody who's like never been behind the wheel, you know, and they slide off the road, get stuck in the snow. They get out of the car and they're just like, you know, these, these other guys, these three guys that he's with, uh, he says like, they're so drunk, like they're just not of use. Like they try to push the car. It's a four by four. This is a BMX uh, X5 and can't get it out of the snow. Right. And at this point in time, like nobody's freaked out. Like they got a warm car. There's no damage to the car. They can wait in the car. Yeah. Uh, they're like figuring Godfrey's like, hey, I got AMA, you know, I'll call a tow truck, like whatever. It's just not a big deal. Like nobody was hurt. Nothing was damaged. Right. Mm-hmm. And just the worst luck ever. What happens? These two cops roll by. They pull up and they get into it with them. And according to Godfrey, you know, and this is where the story sort of diverged. You know, the cops say, oh, well, Godfrey, Godfrey was aggressive that he was pushing his friend. You know, and Godfrey is just like, what are you talking about? Like, why? He's like, I didn't have any reason to be angry at the friend. Right. Yeah. And like, and, and it's just like Godfrey just like, again, all we can say is like Godfrey denies it. The cop says he was pushing Godfrey. He was pushing uh, the friend, the owner of the car. And then at some point, Godfrey turned his aggression at the officers. Okay. Godfrey, again, it's just like, you, do you think I'm stupid? Like, yeah. I'm, I'm going to go and just like front like this cop and get up in this cop's face. Like, are you kidding? You know what I mean? No reason at all, too. Well, exactly. What would be the reason? And what Godfrey's side of the story, and again, you can make up your own mind what you believe, but there are certain factors that many factors, having looked at this for years, that lead me to believe in Godfrey's side of the story is that, you know, he basically said that these cops rolled up and they, instead of like helping them, they were sort of taken to piss. Like, here's four black guys. So the first thing the officers do, just for the record, when they roll up is they run the plates of the car to see if it's stolen, right? Yeah. Now, yeah. is that a coincidence because it's four black guys outside of a, a, of a BMW? Or is no, that, Sean, would they I do that if you. it was four white guys or four white girls? Would they run the plates? Like, maybe, I don't know. Um, Doubtful. But in I any case, that. like, and this is, you know, you can see in the film, like Godfrey's uh, psychiatrist, now, Stephanie Mason, one of the things that really, Dr. Stephanie Mason really upsets her about this case, she says, you know, like, do you think that if that was four white guys, like her son, she said, do you think if it was my son in that car that what happened to Godfrey would have happened? I don't believe it. And she said, do you think if it was four white girls, she says, are you kidding? They would be taking, the cops would be taking them out for coffee. Exactly. You know? Yeah, oh, let's get yeah. you guys warm. Well, and this is the thing. So what did they do? Okay, so they pull up and they claim, you know, Godfrey is aggressive with them. They claim that he's, drunk they use what i think is very racialized language claiming that he's like banging on his chest it's sort of like the way it describes it's almost like oh what does that sound like kind of sounds like a gorilla to me the way you're describing this person right and in any case they take him they roughly they put him they crack his lip on the ground when they throw him on the ground and this is by their own description this isn't controversial right this is 
you know, and God, according to Godfrey, he says, says, hey, you know, he basically would like, he said to the cops, like, hey, if you guys aren't going to help us, because according to him, the cops are sort of like laughing at them. They're like, hey, if you guys tried pushing, right? Godfrey's yeah. like, yeah, we tried pushing. If you want to help us, sure, help us. Otherwise, why don't you leave us alone? And that yeah. seems, according to Godfrey, to be of the thing that triggered this officer, I guess you could call it, to, mm-hmm. uh, to detain him. But they handcuff him. They throw him on the ground, cut his lip. That Everybody agrees on that. They handcuff him and put him in the back of the van. At, at no point in time did they did they charter him, right? Like you, you yeah. like the, the equivalent of reading him his rights and mm-hmm. say, hey, like you're being detained for this reason. What did they say after the fact? They claimed that he had been, that, oh, Godfrey was intoxicated. Was he though? Did they do a breathalyzer test? No. Did they do a sobriety test, make him walk a line? No. Did they take him to the drunk tank? Absolutely not. And Godfrey says, not only was he not drinking, he was the designated driver, right? <laughs> no so, good deed goes unpunished, I guess. It, well, and I really have to say, it's like if he had been drinking and the cops wanted to, like, you know, yeah, uh, if they hey, had one, like some account. Yeah. Like, why don't you why don't you breathalyze the guy or why don't you take him to the drunk tank? And what do they do instead? So, first of all, the three guys that are so drunk that they're like useless and can't help push the car or whatever, they just leave them there with the vehicle. Right. So if, if well, clearly their welfare wasn't a concern. And actually, they ask when when the cop, this guy, Ben Denockley, who also happens to be British, coincidentally, um, when they ask him uh, in court, hey, like the, Joan Bloomer, the defense attorney, says, what happened to the other guys? And they're like, I, I don't know. They're like, well, what happened to the vehicle? They're like, well, the, they're like, well, the vehicle, it wasn't on the road. Nothing was damaged. So we weren't concerned about it. So it's oh like, oh, OK, so you didn't even like, you know, you didn't go back. Like you, you said, you, clearly you don't give a shit. Sure. Yeah. Right? Obviously, your priorities are yeah. not where they're supposed to be. And, and they take Godfrey. Right. And they drive him. They know where he lives because they have his address. Right. They take his ID. What do they do? They drive him in the opposite direction of his house to the middle of the at the time, the East Village, this huge area being redeveloped and they dump him there. Right. And what's amazing is that and and they again, that's very close to the downtown police station. They could have taken him there and booked him. Clearly, they didn't. Maybe there's paperwork. They don't want to do that. Or maybe Godfrey isn't actually drunk. That's a possibility. Mm -hmm. You know, and they dump him there. And and I'll tell you what's also really interesting. So when you're a police officer, well, at least in Calgary, I don't know how it is elsewhere, but I presume this is the case. Say you're going to like do something quite serious, like abrogate somebody's charter rights, put them in your vehicle, cuff them and drive them somewhere. You know what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to make note of that in your log, right? Mm -hmm. There's an event chronology. So here we have the event chronology, them arriving on the site. Okay, Uh, we're running the plates of the car. Okay, Uh, no damage to the vehicle, blah, blah, blah. Okay, and then they say person detained. Okay, and then what happens after that? Nothing. There's like a 25 minute blank. They don't say, oh, uh, we're driving north on uh, on 11th here and uh, we've dropped this person off in the middle of uh, 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 at this address in this place. I can tell you with a high degree of assurance, if what they did was right, don't you think they would have reported it as they did the rest of the stuff? You know, sure. There's no and section for the Starlight Tour or whatever it is. There's exactly where, where's the protocol for the Starlight Tour? And I have to point out. <laughs> So these guys that did this, so there's three officers who were involved, okay? Constable Ben Denockley, uh, and nobody has ever been charged in anything to do with Godfrey's case, okay? So Constable Ben Denockley, he has sub- he has since, and I, I think as of early last year, had left the Calgary Police Service. So whatever complaints against him, unresolved. We've asked the Calgary Police Service, hey, are there any other complaints against this guy that were also abandoned when he quit? No answer. We don't know, Okay. <laughs> This other guy, so the other guy, uh, Constable Kyle Quez, Quez, Quesnica, 
uh, who's also coincidentally from Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, uh, he also, he's the only one that has actually faced any consequences. He was given a, basically a reprimand for what? For not having taken notes, right? So he wasn't, he wasn't trying, it wasn't like, hey, so like you went, you illegally detained this person, you functionally, as far as I can tell, kidnapped them. Because if you put somebody, you detain them without cause and dry and go dump them somewhere. Like, yep. I, like many lawyers have said, like, I don't know how, I don't know what you would call that other than kidnapping as like a, as an act. You know, what was he what was he charged with that? Was he charged with reckless endangerment or negligence or whatever? No, he was charged for not taking notes, you know, like, what is that? You know, and then the third one is, well, you take the easy, well, man, it's just like, and the notion that that's going to like, that would pass muster. So that guy, Constable Kyle Kwasnika, he's still, as far as I'm aware, employee of the Calgary Police Service. Um, So, hey, if anyone's listening to this, you know, like I've, we were content, you know, anyways, there's. That's another person that uh, a number of other things I can't comment on have come to light. Um, that uh, that may be somebody. Well, I don't know. I, I don't want to hypothesize. Hopefully. But if uh, yeah, if anyone there's there's been two other past cases um, against him, and he also goes by the name uh, Math, I believe Kwasnica, which is weird. It's like why are you using two different names in your capacity as an officer? I don't. Yeah, Mr. Kwasnica. Right? What's the real name, <laughs> Mother- motherfucker? But there's two I, other... I, I, I ain't got no court case on me. I'll talk shit. Mr. Kwasnica, if anybody out there listening has anything to do with Mr. Kwasnica or any ticket, I don't care if it's a seatbelt ticket. You let us right. know. We're going to interview there you. you. Go. There you go. <laughs> Whatever well, it, it is. Yeah, for real. And then here's the best one, and I've been rambling on, but the, const, the sergeant, so this Sergeant Grabowski, which also was involved in the Haworth case, which is a whole other thing we don't have to get into, but... He, as per the notes of the other uh, uh, Denocli and his own, uh, he was he was he arrived at the scene afterwards and was involved, uh, according to Denocli, in the detention of Godfrey. Now get this: after when we released the CBC film like back in June, and there was an article done by CBC in Calgary talking about this that mentioned him, uh, CBC was contacted through his lawyer saying, "Excuse me, um, Sergeant uh, Grabowski was not involved in this incident." Uh, you need, can you please, you know, like uh, we demand that you remove um, the mention of his name from the article, right? Yeah. And, and so the, 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 you know, basically CBC responded, they said to us, it's like, hey, they're claiming he wasn't involved. Like, do you have any info on this? And I said, oh yeah, you bet we do. <laughs> because not only, not only is, does Denockley in his notes and then testify to Grabowski having been present, Grabowski himself in a will state provided to the Crown prosecutors in the lead up to Godfrey's trial, um, he himself described supposedly his memory, although it's very close to Denocli, so you'd have to wonder whether or not they had the chance to have a chat about it. But he mm-hmm. described having been there. So basically, this cop, he, he, this is like such a passing incident to him. What they did to this person is so insignificant, I guess, that he doesn't even remember the fact, you know, that he had, <laughs> that he had at some point, like, communicated, the, that he had been requested to testify, et cetera, et cetera, and said, oh, I didn't take any notes. And what about him? He didn't take notes, which he's required to do, you know, by law. Where are the consequences for him? This sergeant, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Oh it's, man. No, it's disgusting. And I can, I can, I'm, I'm pretty sure I had an incident. I could attest to that, though. Even like the notes, even if nothing happens, I'm pretty sure I got pulled over one time uh, back in the day, and I actually, it was a decent officer. It was a female officer who had pulled me over, and um, given the incident, it was a garbage like. 
nine kilometers over traffic stop or whatever for right. a speeding ticket. But um, she had told me because there was, I guess, uh, a smell in the car and she became suspicious of. Nothing materialized. She even called her superior and everything. But um, she had told me that to be careful because even when they bring up my name, there's still notes on interactions with previous officers. So right. it shows that I've interact that they've interacted or pulled me over, whatever the case was. So it, back in the day when I was getting pulled over all the time, I was getting pulled over. It's, it's almost as if they're like, you know, fishing. I don't know right. what notes were actually written about me, but it seems like they were just, you know, taking a shot every time to see if they can catch me on something. So it, it, it's like you said, they take they they're supposed to be they seem to be logging it when it's in their favor, or when they, you know, have a hunch or, you know, want to isolate somebody. But when it comes to something and, and it's it's so interesting to me too, just the contrast that you, you even show um, the response, just the response, like when you see the gentleman um, that was in the hotel room versus mm -hmm. Gottfried in the street, like th those were both phone-ins. It's not like they ran into them at either in either instance. The, the one yeah. where you actually had the victim, who we would assume is the victim, the person making the call, calling, and the response to him, where they didn't even want to send anybody out. It just happened to be Lindsay who, who eventually came out after he... <laughs> was i guess interpreted as harassing the police department versus the other one where the hotel calls and it's not even it's a con it's a contained area it's not like he's out in public or anything like that and they respond right away and they respond in such a fashion that's so like it, it's still aggressive but it's so different they respond right away when it's somebody uh i guess that they you know care about their opinion like a hotel manager or whatever the case might be a business owner versus some random black guy it's 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 disgusting like you're supposed it's supposed to be a victim either way right for real 100 percent. i don't know it, it makes it disgusts me it disgusts me the 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 level of uh carelessness like you said for for the outcome of their results that like you've, you've altered somebody's life like from what i understand from the documentary he's still not able to go to work because of his injuries oh man yeah no godford has uh, i mean there's the psychological side that i think um you know i think over time he certainly hopes to heal but it's it's a pretty severe trauma um and i've you know see him like how he sort of gets around cops because like you know you have this traumatic incident like that's all very understandable but the issues with his back are quite severe as well like we had to we had a, a shoot where we had you know scheduled and we kind of show up with all our gear and everything and he was just like oh man he was just late he was in so much pain um yeah. and you know we know like back issues are like it's it's challenging right it's not like yeah. uh you know it's a it's a really complicated trauma to, and you know godford like he had always like this is a hard-working guy you know he'd worked physical mm -hmm. jobs he'd done like siding and he'd done driving and he did you know it's all kinds of different sort of like stuff and the really tragic thing too is that you know godford talks about in the film how he had uh, enrolled to um and been doing some upgrading because he's coming mm -hmm. from ghana you know where he'd gone to high school so it's complicated to like how do you go from high school in ghana to um post-secondary in canada but he was mm -hmm. had done some upgrading and was planning to study to be a heavy-duty mechanic at sate which is the Southern Insti Albert Institute of Technology. I can't remember what the equivalent would be in uh, in Hamilton, but you know, this is like the school you go to to learn something like this. Mm -hmm. um, and this just came along and just totally threw him off track. You know, like he he has a real issue um, 
concentrating and um, it's just it's been a, it's a number of like both physical and psychological uh, effects that last into this day you know and it's um, I can't imagine yeah and, and, and it's just so, so it's just so senseless man you know like if officers just you know treat people decently and with respect and like you know yeah. I, I don't yeah. know I just don't, I don't get it man I don't, get, it. I don't get the power tripping you know didn't his relationship suffer as well um, well he, yeah. T- t- totally, yeah, because he says, you know, like, cause, and actually when I first met Godfrey, they were still together and, you know, and he just said it was tough because, you know, when you're, you know, you're used to like working every day and you all of a sudden can't work and financially they're really struggling and she's sort of, you know, she's the only one bringing in income and they were, not only did he, he's like the relationship fell apart, they were evicted. Godfrey was wow. functionally homeless. Godfrey was functionally homeless for six months. He was, uh, ended up sleeping on his buddy's couch um you know in this like one room basement apartment i saw that place man like it was you know this was not a luxe uh situation and he was sleeping on a shitty couch with a really fucked up back you know like it's just not um yeah. you could tell you he know? carries the guilt too you could tell that he was he was uh he was really feeling it the fact that he couldn't contribute as well even when he was in the relationship and and afterwards. oh man well and, you know and he's got he's got his family, he's got his mom and his sisters and you know cousins, everybody yeah. back home in Ghana. And he had always sent money home, and mm-hmm. I think that that's the other thing too is like, you know, like there's people on the other side of the world that are have you know had a really you know having a hard time because they're depending on on yeah. somebody, and he wasn't able to deliver it. Like man, it, that's a that's a heavy heavy situation, you know. No kidding. Yeah, and I no always man, I, I I always you know Godfrey like I I told him so many times that we spent a lot of time together. And, it's just like, I don't know how that guy has, like, I don't know how he's made, like, I don't know how he's kept it so real, you know? Like, I don't know how mm-hmm. he's still such a, like, a kind, generous, gentle person. Like, man, like, yeah. you know, he doesn't have much, but he'll give you the shirt off his back, you know what I mean? Like, he's just, he's such it a sweetheart, like you know? And I don't, man, if I had been done like that, I, I don't know. I don't know that I would be so calm. I don't know, man. Yeah, yeah the, way my petty is, the way my petty is set up, I don't think I could be as building <laughs> as, uh, you know, as he is. Right? You know, yeah. yeah, no, your petty level's got to be on zero to to react the way he has with the whole situation. Well, he's, well and he's and he's so like, and he's, you see it again and again as time, you know, because in the film we sort of see that he's, you know, he's always like Godfrey is like always optimistic that there's justice at the end of the rainbow, you know, mm-hmm. and and every time you know it's like oh well the complaint like it's gonna work out and like maybe you know or maybe it's gonna work out and then oh well they've charged him this other thing maybe they they'll charge him here you know like. He just like I don't like he's oh he's so optimistic man and it's so hard to like every time the system fails him, you know and I've just for years now been seeing that happen it's just like it just breaks your heart man. It's it's, it's very interesting to see like because I know for me um, like as a person like being able to uh, contribute to my family it's it's a big thing for me and to see that taken away from and for him to still have that level of optimism because I I'll be honest with you I feel like that. That could break the spirit of another man, right? He lost his relationship over this situation. He was unable to provide. It, it made him, I like, just for me thinking, I, I would feel like it would be make me feel less adequate as like, as a as a man. You know what I mean? Like not as being a able provider, to provide yeah. and, and and support my loved ones. Well, seriously, and I think that like, look, I mean, Godfrey, um, you know, it took years, um, and it was really like so basically. He originally went, you know, like was getting a, like a very little support from the province, sort of like the equivalent of like EI, you know, like mm-hmm. Alberta works. So it's like 600 bucks a month. But like, man, 
Calgary, it's like cost of living is basically like close Way to Toronto high. or whatever. It's just like 600 bucks a month. Are you kidding? You know, yeah. and then and he eventually, you know, was able to uh, um, to get on. Uh, he's now classified, you know, on 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 H, uh, which is the um, you know Alberta insurance for the severely handicapped, I believe. You know, but still, like, yeah. well, man, it's just like I don't know what that is in Ontario, but like, that, it's just not a lot of money. And like the fact that that even happened was was remarkable and really based upon I think the um, you know the the support of the psychiatrist, is my understanding, uh, Dr. Mason. But like, man, I've seen like, you know, it's like the notion is like, oh, this guy, you know, like anyone that thinks of like, oh, you're just cashing in on the system, man, fuck that. Like that, this is just like you're living in, you're living in poverty, and it's just like the notion that, you know, Godfrey would go from being again like somebody who had like a good income and a good life, and just be like, oh yeah, I'm really gonna milk this thing. Like, man, fuck you. You don't know what you don't know what you're talking about. Exactly. You know? It's so stupid. It's such a dumb point of view. Like, really, your lineup on your TV schedule is that hardcore that you want to just scratch by a living, getting just under living wage from the government in order to in order to survive. Nobody wants to be on assistance if they have an option. No, and and I, you know, and I'll say like, oh, yeah, man, it's it's um, it, it it's really. I don't even have words right now. Like it's just really rough, you know. Yeah, I know. It's 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 hard to it's hard to comprehend the 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 effects of of the life like Godfrey. But it's it's sad because it's no fault of his own, you know. Like like you said, he was out doing a favor for a friend, got into an incident with the wrong people. The crazy thing is the ratio. Of, he interacted with three officers that night, and all three were garbage. All three treated him like garbage. That's a really bad ratio. Well, well, and it actually, if it, if only it were the three, <laughs> it's more because it's the it's the three in the first incident. Then we can then it's Lindsay. Oh, yeah, there we was can, three and in the we first can, That's right. And then we and we and then it actually goes from there because we could add in. I mean, fine. There's the interaction with the two different nine one one callers, both of which I would say have problematic and like what seemed to me very racialized, to put it minor minorly, like aspects to their interactions. Um, mm. But then there's actually more because the officers that arrive afterwards, uh, there's a whole other officer. There's, there's the officer who ended up charging him, who's this guy, Curtis. And Constable Curtis, who's now been promoted since then, no surprise, um, he, he testified at court. And one of the things that uh, Ms. Bloomer, Godfrey's lawyer, asked uh, Curtis, he says, you're the officer who charged him. Yes. And it's like, well, how did you, one of the aspects of that was like, that was forming this sort of thing is like, oh, well, that Godfrey was drunk. Again, we go back to the drunk thing. And it says like, well, how did you form that opinion? Right? Mm -hmm. And he says, oh, well, two things. He says, well, one, the other officers told me so. And it's just like, man, that is not how you do police work. You know, <laughs> like you need to form your own opinion, just showing up and being like, oh, is this guy? Oh, this guy's drunk. Oh, okay. Yeah. So my understanding, and again, I'm not a lawyer or a professional in this, but my understanding is like, that ain't cool. Um, mm -hmm. But the other thing he says was that, well, Godfrey kept repeating, I don't deserve this. Mm -hmm. Right. He just said, here's Godfrey, who's just been picked up. He's been handcuffed. He's been dropped off. He's frozen his ass off. Amazing. He's alive. He's been tasered. Uh, repeatedly, you know, it's three times. He was actually tasered like a, like three times and some one I think was 11 seconds, you know, yeah. and right. and then dragged, dragged through the snow and beaten like and then and even then when the other officers arrived and Godfrey talks about it, they all dogpile on him, too. You know what I mean? And so here's this Godfrey who's just like stunned by what he's been through and I'm sure in just tremendous pain and you know, and he says and, 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 and his claim that Godfrey was drunk is he kept repeating. I don't deserve this. Might it been the case 
that he really he didn't. didn't deserve it. Like, right? but also like, like that's how you're determined. You're a professional police officer. This is what you're using to determine that he's drunk. I guarantee you, there's no book. You, you, that you says hear my that. slow there's, clap over here. You know, <laughs> there's no book that says like, okay, here are the catchphrases that determine the drunkability of a person. Right. One of which I don't deserve this. It's yeah. number seven on the list, but we'll give it to them. It's okay. Especially, especially if in, if you're in like a dazed, clearly like traumatized and like in painful yeah. state, you know, and you're repeating clearly, clearly it must be the opposite of what that person is saying. Good God, get out of here, man. Go lay down. It's a, it's a lot of contradictory, a lot of contradictory things. So, and then, and then actually we're talking about the number of officers. So what are we up to here? So we're up to three plus one plus the call, plus the call takers, plus uh, the officer who charged and the officer who did the investigation. Seven, okay, eight, six, two, seven, and then there's the other several officers who arrived. So when Godfrey talks about that, when he actually, and again, so this is disturbing. So when he got to the police station, he said that like, that he was on the way in, but especially on the way out when he was discharged a few hours later, that they like, they were just basically like roughed him up in the elevator, right? What? Yeah. And it's just like, again, you got somebody in handcuffs, like, do you really need to like, and God, like, again, like, I, I don't know what Godfrey's motivation, like, you know, would be to make something like this up, right? Mm -hmm. So here's the thing, Godfrey, like, mentioned this in, in the original complaint, but I actually, we filed, and we've done many freedom of information requests for this video, because as we know from other incidents of abuse in the same facility in Calgary, there's quite good um, video coverage, including in the elevator. And we said, well, hey, can we get the, um, you know, can we get the, um, can we get the footage? And, and, and what do they come back and they say, oh, well, actually, sorry, it's been deleted. And it's like, oh, oh, really? And it says, well, why is that? And it says, well, it's our policy that after 13 months, something like, I believe it's 13 months, we delete the old videos. First of all, like, <laughs> why? Like, is it really like in this modern age of like data storage? Like, why are you deleting yeah. the videos? But put that aside, they're like, well, unless it's been flagged, we should delete it. And it's like, well, hey, like, wasn't this person filing a very serious complaint about his treatment of police? Like, shouldn't you have, like, initiated the protocol that just says, mm -hmm. hey, guys, we want to protect ourselves. Let's just preserve all the evidence. Because I'll tell you what that does is I look at that and I say, well, it's really a shame that we don't have the video because then maybe, you know, if, if in fact your officers are in the right, we could have watched that video and seen, hey, you know, mm -hmm. Godfrey, like, Maybe he misremembers or maybe he was all fucking like out of his mind and yeah. traumatized and like imagine this or maybe he had a bad dream. But like, no, like we can't do that. And, and I'm sorry, but like be, if it's the choice between believing Godfrey compared to all the other lies and bullshit we got from these other guys, I'm going to believe that, too. So like or at the very least, we can't disprove, you know, that the officers did. And had they done their job properly in terms of processing that complaint, we would have that evidence. So it's like another Another little failure there. So I don't know how many cops that leads us to, but there's, you know, it's like eight it's or nine or something that are named in his suit. Takes more than one hand. That's the problem. Oh, man, see, I'm all keyed up here. You know, and, and what's crazy is like, and go back to Godfrey, you know, being ever the optimist. But in the end of the film, there's that moment, I don't know if you remember where, you know, where he says, you know, you know, he says, I, I'm sure, I'm sure not all cops are bad, you know? That's and it's so, like, yeah, and, it's so hard kudos to him like that he can like you know keep up that optimism not all cuts best but what he says but like in my case you know like all of these officers nobody did the right thing you know yeah. so so he says and he says so where's the good one you know yeah. what i mean and that yeah. i really think is the question man it's just it hits like home. well it hits yeah home. all it takes is one bad one like you're like oh well you can't police everybody but it'll 
one bad one that you run into is gonna matter. If you run into that person, you're gonna you're gonna care if it's one out of a ten or one out of a thousand. Seriously, as we saw, man. As we saw in the second, um, in the second story, all it takes is one to end your life, like literally. Seriously, right? One bad cop. I can't believe they absolved it. Like they they oh, it has nothing to do with the incident that he took the brain trauma from. Yeah, that that was that was the crazy part of the, the documentary there. Oh, yeah. Man. Well, yeah, and we haven't even gotten into like the Haworth. Yeah, like that's a whole. That's yeah, well. This that's... is the thing, right? So, like here, and this just to me speaks to these bigger issues. Where, like, okay, you're the police, right? And this is an inspector. This is like a pretty senior guy. This is a very senior person who's making. This is the we're talking here about the press conference announcing charges against uh, an officer and related to this this aggravated assault, which we now know and has been proven in court against. Uh, this is uh, Constable Trevor Lindsay. The aggravated assault of Daniel Haworth. Um, and when they announced that, you know, there's just all these like sort of, um, you know, presumptions like in that press conference, it says, well, you know, that a reporter asked the question and says, well, what, you know, what happened to the victim, you know, who had, who had received this aggravated assault? He says, well, he's gone on to die of unrelated causes. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, he completely and, recovered from the initial. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He reco- There you go. That's exactly it, brother. He says, like, yeah, he recovered from his injuries and and died of unrelated causes. And I'll tell it's... you the problem with that, my friend, is like, oh, 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 really? Like, are, are you a doctor? Not only yeah. that, do you have some sort of medical opinion to substantiate that? Because as far as I'm aware, that doesn't exist. So yeah. what business do you have getting up there making a, a claim like it's just so irresponsible, so mm-hmm. irresponsible. Or and completely family, purposeful, or or because, completely purposeful, right? Right. It, it like it worked, right? It, it seemed to have worked at least at least as far as we can tell. That seems to be the mo, right? And 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 maybe that particular officer, his name is Ryan Aleth. Like maybe he, maybe that's what he was told, and he's just repeating what he was told, mm-hmm. you know. But like again, it's just like we we got to do better than this with the system because like, as the family detailed in the film, it's like no, like and his lawyer is like, well. Certainly, it's it's far from clear that he made a complete recovery because, according to his brother, you know they worked together, uh, pouring concrete, they have, you know, business together. This is like he. This was somebody who had an exceptional memory. This is a really really bright dude. And after that incident, like his memory was fucked. Like he couldn't. Like he had a little notebook. He was desperately trying to, you know, write everything down because he just he went from having this excellent memory to nothing. Like that doesn't sound like recovered to me. And yeah. you know. And he in fact, he didn't even recover from the, the drill hole that they had to put in his skull in order to re- alleviate the did, pressure. Did, well, seriously, man. I mean, that's like as far as far as I'm aware, the medical opinion was that he had a permanent brain injury, you know. Yeah. So for this officer to get up there and claim that, you know, he had recovered and that his death was unrelated because unfortunately, you know, he went on to die of a fentanyl overdose uh, the same day, mind you that he was kicked out of a rehab facility. Why was he kicked out of a rehab facility? It's like, well, he wasn't attending his meetings. Why wasn't he attending the meetings? He couldn't remember that he had them, even though he was trying to, like, you know. So his family looks at this and says, well, that seems, you know, and his lawyer, you know, says, like, that seems pretty related to me, you know, so. The, cr- the crazy thing is if it was corporate, if it was like a corporate case where, say, an employee had been involved in an incident and it had some way indirectly affected the profits of the business, they would 100% be able to go after that person. Right. As, right. Like if it was, if, if they had been convicted of, say, whatever, negligence on the job and it ended up costing a million dollars in damage to property, that company could go after that person, that individual, depending totally. on, obviously depending on their contract, if they 
hold liability, but they could, in a lot of cases, go after damages of that person. How is it not okay to hold the person responsible for causing your brain damage to anything resulting after that? Well, well, and this is the thing is like, so in that particular case, so like Daniel Haworth uh, did intend, so the charges against him were, um, well, we don't know because basically he died before things were resolved. Um, but, you know, it's yeah. not, it's not hard to imagine that maybe the charges would have been dropped or whatever, just given the, that would be pretty common, you know, when somebody goes and uh, gets mm -hmm. a permanent brain injury by, you know, the officer that's charging you, like, you know, you probably drop those charges, but we don't, anyways. But the point yeah. is, like, uh, he, he certainly intended to, he was, you know, going to sue the city and according to his lawyer, uh, Pavel Macherik, uh, you know, like, he thought they had a claim there and uh, I just don't think, I mean, from the lawyers I know, most of them don't, you know, want to do a whole bunch of work with no prospect of getting a return. So, um, yeah, you know, it, seem, it seems to me like, um, uh, you know, like I think uh, we just we just don't know. And I think it's, um, you know, it's it's on the one hand, it's I think we I, I certainly uh, family and, you know, appreciates that uh, Lindsay's been convicted. But, you know, again, here we are. OK, so let's just here's another reality check. OK, so the trial was in. Uh, the trial took place over the course of two weeks in, in uh, May, uh, May 2019, okay? So we're approaching, it's going to be two years this May, okay? It took a month, a month later, the judge came back and convicted him of aggravated assault, okay? Now, that conviction, so June 2019, here we are in early 2021, we still don't have a sentencing. Like, he has still not been sentenced. Like, he hasn't done a day in jail. He hasn't even paid a fine or like, and the thing about an aggravated assault conviction, like it could be, it could be uh, the potential charge is many years in prison. Now, is it likely that this officer is going to get that? I very much doubt it. But here we are, you know, almost two years later and there still isn't even a sentencing. And like, sure, you might be able to say part of that is COVID, but like there was almost a, a year that went by before COVID was a thing in which that didn't happen. Eight months, nine months, that didn't happen. So like... Mm -hmm. I don't know, man. Justice delayed is justice denied. I just don't understand. Um, uh, I don't know. It's complicated, then, you know. Then they'll add the waiting period as to as part of his sentence, and he'll do like a week and a half in a minimum security volunteer facility. Man, for re I really, I really wonder. Like, I, I, I'm very, very curious. But on, you know, I'm always, I'm also an optimist, and I try to point out. So one of the things that's interesting is that. Well, Godfrey, like there's never been any charges filed in relation to Godfrey's case. Uh, in, in, in the Crown Prosecutors, a guy named John Barmastani was up in Edmonton. Uh, I wasn't at the, there was a hearing that took place this past fall and he uh, stated his intention to, uh, and I don't know if this will change, but basically to um, bring into play, like to use the, that he basically referenced our film specifically, that he had seen Above the Law, the CBC version of the film, and seeing the video of what had happened to Gottfried and becoming aware of this video um, thinks that that is relevant in terms of the sentencing of Lindsay in the sense that like, it's basically like, you know, uh, it's, it's him acting in a, in, a, in a professional capacity prior and treating somebody else in a very violent way who's also in handcuffs, et cetera. Um, so we'll see, and potentially it's, I don't, who knows, but like, you know, the intent I believe was expressed to, uh, to possibly call Godfrey to testify as well. Um, so maybe in a roundabout way, Godfrey will sort of see his day in court, not as an accused as he was before, 
which he was acquitted of, of course, but as, um, you know, on the other side, actually getting to, to speak in the public realm uh, on the record in court uh, about what he went through at the hands of this person, you know? Yeah, I was hoping at least maybe something will turn out from the, from the well, not sentencing, but the, the charges being laid against the one officer because, like, that's, it's almost the only hope that you can get is to get some kind of glimpse of case law that you might be able to reference nowadays because the, it's so, it's so worded so ambiguously in the law that they can, like you said, get away with those types of interpretations. Oh, he felt threatened because of a needleless syringe or whatever the case, and oh, they can yeah. just dismiss it, right? Oh, man. Well, yeah, and that's a whole, there's like a whole world of discussion to be had about sort of like, clearly sort of like the way that cops seem to be operating. You get these terms, right? And this is common. You see it in the States, too. It's like, oh, well, he lunged at me, right? Yeah. You know, he lunged at me or he was, you know, he was exactly was making a threatening gesture, whatever. There's just these various sort of terms and you see it pop up uh, in Godfrey's case. You see it pop up in, in the hallway, in all the cases we've looked at, you know, where it's just mm -hmm. like, Okay, it's like clearly this has become part of the job where you have these sort of like standard language that you, you can sort of hide behind legally. Get out um, of jail card. Yeah, man. I don't know. You know, there's interesting, there's so much, I mean, man, we could go all night. There's so many things to talk about, but like there's a school of thought. Uh, I can't remember the gentleman's name, but somebody in the States um, was basically talking about, you know, that like this, usually, the typical thing that happens where like police officers are like, whoa, I thought he had a gun. I shot him because I thought he had a gun. It's like, no, that's not good enough. It's mm -hmm. like, it's like your, your thought. It's like, don't shoot somebody until you know that they have a gun. Or mm -hmm. if somebody has a knife, like there's several uh, fatal shootings in Calgary that have happened. Uh, some really tragic ones. There's this woman, you know, who was killed on Christmas day. There's another woman who was killed in a backyard. Like there's just, you know, and it's just like, oftentimes it's just like, oh, well she had a, like, you know, she had something sharp or whatever. It's just like, okay, so what? Like, why don't or you gardening just like, tools or, or whatever it is, but it's just like that you actually, it's like with the Heffernan one, it's like, oh, well, I thought it had a needle tip. Well, you know what? If you go and kill somebody because you think that that's the case and it's not the case, like you should be criminally liable. Um, this is, this is, I'm just, this is uh, the uh, people have this opinion and there's a scholar whose name escapes me. I could find it afterwards who I thought was made a very convincing argument that basically says it's just like, you know, now, there's a whole issue in the states to do with like Supreme Court, uh, this, this precedent to do with like establishing, you know, that essentially it's like all you have to do is be afraid. If you're a cop and you're afraid, it's like, well, you're good to go. You know, and I just I just man, I just like I don't know what that society is. It ain't the society I want to live in, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. And it's wild you know? to think that they have a gun and they're scared. If you have a gun right? and you're still scared, you're mad pussy. That's just how I feel. If, if you're going to if you want to uphold yeah. that kind of. Um, that sorry guys if you want to uphold that sort of uh, rhetoric where if I feel scared then I'm allowed to do it then you better be ready to be replaced by a robot because that's the only way that you can have like you need a bunch of robocops in order to deal with people if you're gonna have those be the the, the way the letter of the law is going to be interpreted because right. it's it's insanely stupid to think that just He's, ab he's allowed to act like a normal person and civilian in terms of being afraid and stuff, but you're also going to put him in a position where he's his whole job is to be a person in the line of this high-tensity, high-anxiety sort of situation at all times. It, it's, it doesn't make any sense. And it, it, it's like you said, you, they need to be held liable for the actions that they take, just like 
Okay, well, if I was scared, that's fine. I thought he had a gun. Okay, that's fine. I'm not allowed to use that argument if I go to court. I'm not allowed to use, oh, well, I didn't know it was illegal. That's literally, it's written in the criminal code. Ignorance of the law is not an excuse for breaking the law. So totally. it's, the, it's the same sort of thing. If, if, if you're ignorant of the facts, then that's not an excuse for you to act upon those facts as your reasoning for, or as your justification for the actions that you took thereafter. Man, you, you said it, you know, straight up. It's just like there has to be, um, I don't know. It's just like there's so many, there's so many like, there's so many like. Um, it's just cracks. Just cracks, but it's also like, man, there's just all these like falsehoods, right? Like, for example, like there's this, nobody seems to question this whole issue. It's like, oh, well, policing, you know, it's like, it's like, well, it's such a hard job. It's such a dangerous job. Is it though? Like, is it actually like statistically the case that being a police officer is a particularly dangerous job? Uh, at least in Canada, that's just not the case. Like, I would love to see, uh, I, I have, we haven't been able to find numbers that substantiate that. You know what, like, the most dangerous job is? Like, Oil two rigor. things. It's like, well, yeah, <laughs> it's like construction, uh, like, extractive industries, like fishing, logging, construction. You know what's really, really dangerous, might even be the most, is drive long-haul truck driving. You I know? was going to yeah. say the ice yeah. truckers. I was going to say the ice truckers. Like, all, that sure. shit is dangerous. You know what's actually more dangerous? You know what's dangerous? It's like being a nurse. Nurses is yeah. quite dangerous. Your exposure to, uh, speaking of bloodborne illnesses, or for people having like violent uh, outbreaks that can like do you know the serious damage. Like I have a buddy who's uh, paramedic and then worked as like uh, in like a, in a psych facility in Edmonton. You know, as as a nurse. Like his stories. Oh my god. You know what I mean? Like these mm -hmm. are like. Anyways, but the point is, I'm not saying that it's not like it's the same thing as being a librarian. But like <laughs> the, we, there's there's sort of this notion. It's like oh these noble you know. It's have you like, seen those shelves? I watched the mummy the I watched the mummy the other day, bro. Have you seen those shelves? They can <laughs> topple any moment. Any moment. It's like dominoes. Right? It's death trap. Right? Everyone mm. deserves hazard pay. Well, and I well, <laughs> this is what I'm saying, like, you know. And it's no. it, it just I just think with <laughs> the mummy, dude, yeah. I love that thing crazy, right? Respect. Respect yes. Oh yeah, no, the original. I don't I don't fuck with that Tom Cruise version. That shit was horrible. Oh, was, can you how did they remake that movie? Like, how do you I don't know do why that? you would. Why would you? Oh, it's, it's, the, the, it's that, but the, see, that's the thing is, I don't think it was supposed to be like no, that it was, movie. It was supposed yeah, to be like it was a revamp. dark universe type deal because they were planning to do like a vampire movie and then a wolf movie too. Like they were trying to bring back the old movie stars or the, uh, yeah, the horror movie yeah, the only The only darkness about that movie was when I clicked the power button. It was terrible. <laughs> it was ter terrible movie. Terrible Oh, but uh, but I I uh, I do appreciate having you on and, and sharing your point of view. It's clear that you've you've like just the nature of your work. It, you've been exposed to so many of the stories. Like I can imagine uh, it being very <laughs> strenuous. Well, man, I, yeah, no, it's true. It's like uh, you know, it's like it's it's a lot. And uh, at some point in time, I um, you know, I don't, this is, I didn't even know this is like, two, I don't know when this is, a year ago, two years ago, like my girlfriend was just like, you know, you're going to need some therapy after this is all over, right? You know? Oh, yeah. and, it's, and, it's, and it's just like, I, I don't, man, it's like the problem with like this whole stuff to do with police is just like, I just find like the abuse of power is really, really disturbing, whatever the sort of realm it's in. Mm -hmm. And it's like, and I just, it's sort of, it's just like the deeper you look, the worse it is. And I, and I wish it's like, and like, you know, the CBC version, whatever, like the feature film, you know, 98 minutes, like, man, like we are scratching the surface. Like we could do a 10 part, you know, doc series, like, and we still wouldn't be like, there's so much, 
And every case that we've looked at in detail, the ones in the film and others, like the number of procedural problems, the number of ways in which that are like range from minor to serious that like officers are basically not, you know, they're clearly breaking the rules. And it's just like, where is, you know, and there's no accountability for it. Like I just, and like, and these are the few instances that have actually come to light. The ones that there happens to be video, you know, that there happens to be like with Anthony Heffernan's case, they happen to have a family that was very vocal. That was very like they, you know, were out in the media talking about it. They did a, a, a protest. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. that's not most yeah. of the time victims of police are not getting like they're just, you know, nobody they don't have hears a platform. About it, yeah, right? no platform at all. Yeah. No. So I, I, do you think do you think uh, like do you see any kind of a solution for these kinds of problems? Like I I. <laughs> It's kind of idealistic, but I picture a world where just given the technology that we have, like now everybody obviously has a cell phone. And that's great that we're getting a lot of, uh, you know, we get a lot, a lot of exposure to things that maybe we didn't necessarily get exposed to before. But um, even with like, I don't know, drones or whatever the case might be, you think they'll have to or do you think it's even possible to uh, put in some sort of reform into the police force where they're going to be sort of constantly monitored or, or, you know, like somebody constantly keeping an eye that will be able to have an upper hand on them, like maybe stop them while the situation is happening if they're in the so, wrong. So I think there's like, there's a few different like aspects to it. So like one of the things that is often pointed to is body cameras, right? Which there's a lot of issues with, like, I don't think it's a panacea. Like body cameras do not solve all the problems, No, but no, they no. do potentially help. I mean, I would point out again in these instances, if there hadn't been, so for those who haven't seen the film, so Godfrey in his case, you know, when he had been charged with assaulting the officer and he said, uh, like, this could have been much easier had there been body camera, what would have happened? Because mm -hmm. like, again, uh, we just don't know. But, you know, he said to his lawyer, he says, you have to find cam, you have to find video. There must be video. We're in a big construction site. There has to be video of what happened, right? Mm -hmm. And she basically responded to that being like, wait a minute, if this guy is lying and he really assaulted this cop and he's making this all up, like, why would he want me to go find this video, right? Yeah. Um, yep. So, like, to me, and in the end, there was video and we'll watch a film. It comes from an interesting source that you might not have expected. Mm -hmm. um, uh, no, and, no, no spoiler for that one. That case, <laughs> No spoilers for that one. I will hold that one back. And it's the same thing in the Haworth one. There's also happens to be a video that's sort of there by accident. It's not actually from the police department. It's from the, the library. It used to be the central library downtown in Calgary. They have a CCTV video that captured quite clearly what had happened. But again, without those downtown. videos, do you think that the death trap downtown, there you go. Do you think that, like, do you think that would have, those would have come to light? No, and this is what the happened said too. It's like, without, if we had had video in that hotel room, if the officers had been wearing body cameras, we might be able to get some semblance of the truth. Um, yeah. But that being said, like, and Calgary, to its credit, was the, well, I mean, these things, it's, it's complicated because you have to debate, like, well, where's the money being spent and if it's worth it and all that kind of jazz. But, like, mm -hmm. it was the first department in the country to fully roll out body cameras uh, in all of its officers. Here's the problem, though. If officers are not being uh, held to account when they don't have their body cameras on, mm -hmm. then we have a real problem there. And there's an incident with somebody, you know, like, um, similar to the case in Toronto where the young woman uh, fell to her death off a balcony, there was a similar instance in Calgary down in uh, downtown near Eau Claire where three or four officers arrived and basically uh, this woman ended up falling to her death off a balcony. Jeez. And again, we don't know. And the thing is, I think, I can't remember if it was three, I believe it was three, maybe four officers who were there. They all had body cameras on. 
all of them, apparently, according to the Calgary Police Service, were malfunctioning. Or maybe they weren't running or whatever it is. But the point is, like, there's some sort of serious breakdown. Like, is there some sort of consequences for those officers? You know? Well, they're, like, they're ultimately and again, in charge know, of like, it, right? I, well, this <coughs> like is the they... thing. is like, if it really was a technical breakdown, like, I would, like, the police, you would think they'd, like, why don't you release some information to say, like, okay, we had a system-wide breakdown on this day that fucked up all the cameras. Like, I, I have not seen that information be released, you know? And, like, I don't know, like, there's so many... You know, like, this is the thing, unless you have a family that's really active, that's really fighting, like, to get to the bottom of things, like, we're just two schmucks, like, you know, doing this, like, it's like, most of the stuff we do, like, we're not getting paid for it, you know, like, all this research, like, it's just like, we're just interested in this stuff, you know, and it's just like, it's yeah, a, it's it's an so upstream fight. So anyway, it's an upstream fight. So I would say that, like, but yeah, theoretically, if you have a technology like the body camera, it, it could have the possibility of, of increasing accountability with the caveat that, you know, that there's actually consequences if an officer has turned it off, you know, that they are legally responsible to have it on. And if they're involved in something, in an incident, and it's not on, it's not just like, oh, shit, you know, like, well, that's a bummer, Jim, like, turn it on next time. It's like, no, there has to be consequences, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there's that side of it. I think that there's, like, and watch the film, like, there's so many different points of, like, broadly speaking, we call the accountability infrastructure, right? That's to do with, like, you know, Yep. Uh, to do with the way the Crown Prosecution Service operates, to do with the professional standard section, to do with ACER, to do with all these there's different aspects. There's really obvious, tangible things that could be done to improve those systems, full stop. Um, in terms of the bigger picture, and you know, here we are, we're, like this is the year, like in the last year, we've seen more discourse and dialogue and activism around policing than ever before. I think it's fair to say, not just in in Canada and the States, but, you know, around the world, this is a huge movement at this point in time. Um, in terms of bigger, more like profound, uh, s- systematic, systemic changes rather to policing. Yeah. I just think that like, you know, we are expending as a society, a huge number of resources and I'm pretty sure every major city in Canada, you know, and maybe every district, you know, certainly in Toronto and Calgary, um, you know, Vancouver, like the largest single line item on the, on the city budget by a margin tends to be the police departments. It's a huge, um, you know, you see things like public housing, like these types, this is way down the list. It's getting a fraction of the, of the funding. So to me, it's just like, we really need to ask these questions. It's like, are we as a society, like, are we getting good value for our money? Like, might there be things we could do that would say like, you know, use these resources more effectively and get good results. Here's one idea, one suggestion. So, you know, growing up, like, you know, my mom was a social worker and used to talk with her a lot and sort of see, like, hear secondhand about the stuff that she was dealing with, which sometimes involves police officers. Um, but, like, like, again, you know, to be a social worker, you know, that's a degree. That's a whole skill set. Um, and a lot of, and like, so in Calgary in particular, but I think this is fairly true, and Edmonton also came up with a similar number, the claim from the police departments is something like, at a minimum, 30%, at a minimum, 30% of the calls that they're dealing with are like, again, mental health crises, basically, you know, uh, and, and so really, like, if that's the case, maybe it's mental health and addictions together, I'm not sure, but the point is, like, are the police officers the ones, like, basically, they're saying, like, oh, well, we're being asked to do these things that we're really not, it's not our expertise, like, okay, so why don't we mix things up in the system, and, and, and to their credit, I mean, like, people, I think the, the, the protest movement, like, potentially change could be coming, but we need to keep that, you know, that pressure on. Like, for example, like, as opposed to, like, a typical beat unit, right, which would, say, be two cops driving around in a, in a souped-up, you know, sedan or whatever, or an SUV, 
How about instead of two cops with the same skill set, maybe it should be like a cop, you know, who has the one skill set, and then a social worker who has a whole different yeah. skill set, and maybe then together, you know, could could get much better results in terms of like actually de-escalating these situations, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just like one option. Like in Toronto, there's a there's a it's been operating for decades now. There's this it's not funded by the police. It's actually funded by the province, but it's a unit that's specific. It's a team of social workers that specifically respond to people um, in mental health crises. And there are wow. thousands of interactions with the police that over the decades have been diverted. Um, and basically, if somebody is in crisis, instead of sending the cops out there to lay a heavy hand or whatever it is, they send this team and they basically figure out, and oftentimes, like if somebody is in, say, like an abuse situation or whatever, they figure out they like have a special, they could get people like directly at the hospital, they could do any number of things, right? So mm-hmm. the point is, there are lots of alternatives to conventional policing. And if we actually, police departments themselves are saying as much, saying that like, hey, like we, you know, we are being asked to do things that we shouldn't be asked to do. Okay, well, why don't we, quote, defund, Deal with if that. you want to call it, or whatever you want to call it. Why don't we take some of that money, spend it elsewhere, and I'll tell you this, police officers, you know, there's not a lot of jobs in this, in this society where you can make, you know, six-figure salaries with, like, a high school education. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. some people make that work, but there's not that many people, like, you know, typical yeah, salary for teachers, social workers, you're talking, like, I don't know, you know, 50, 60K or whatever range. Most yep. cops uh, in Calgary, Toronto, whatever, like, after a few years, they're making six-figure salaries, you know? And a lot of them get benefits. They get overtime. Like, a lot of cops are making it's – a, it's a really well-paying job, you know? For sure. Um, so – no, they're getting paid to do their job for sure. But at the the very least, we can ask is for them to do their job. Well, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that, like, I think that there's a bigger question that needs to happen to do with like reevaluating, not being afraid to reevaluate what exactly is the job of policing, for right? Sure. Like, what exactly are the responsibilities? For example, with things like, you know, traffic stops and stuff like that. Like, you know, I've spent some time, for example, in South Korea. You know, on the highways in South. You know what they don't have is like cops pulling people over. You know what they have is just a whole bunch of cameras. You know, yeah. And like, and I, I can only presume that the cost over time. It's like, yeah, okay. You're saying it's important for safety reasons to have people not speeding on the highway. Okay, put in some cameras. Like, it doesn't involve like pulling people over. It doesn't involve car chases. Like, whatever. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. I, I like. I, I'm just saying. Like, there's I think lots of ways, lots of opportunity to improve on a structural well, level. Like. Um, it seems like a very practical way, like the one you're talking about, at least mitigating those certain calls to somebody who's more well equipped to handle a specific call like that. And if it's if it's like you say, the 30 percent of the calls that are being um, that are specifically these types of instances, if you can alleviate 30 percent of the workload of the police officers just on the beat, then I think that is more than enough grounds to to allocate some funding to some kind of department or some kind of like a resource that can build that kind of an infrastructure like you're saying it's more than enough savings 30 percent of your of if you're say if you can find 30 percent to well, cut out of your budget in any other business you you're going with that plan whatever it is well totally and, and i think and as far as i understand those, those estimates are probably pretty conservative you know mm-hmm. and there's just a lot of other shit like you know like for example like when you have an accident you know and so you have a, a, a fender vendor or whatever, right? It's like, you don't need a cop with a gun there to like fill out the paperwork about the accident. Like get out of town. Like that shouldn't be a cop. Time. That should be like some other, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. some other person. So I think the real, the bigger question is like, okay, let's actually look at the jobs that our officers are doing. 
and let's actually you know critically evaluate what is what is being done well by them what isn't being done well and what should be reallocated elsewhere and i think like i've had a lot of you know kind of conversations with people that uh including that work in policing where it's just like yeah like there's probably like a good chunk of these cops that like you know the old school ones or whatever like who have whatever their biases and whatever their problems and what they used to fire them off the roof you know what i mean <laughs> early retirement get out of here you know what i mean yeah. so big change know. big change needs big change mm-hmm. yeah, well, but, um, thank you so much mark for, for coming on the show today I, I i feel like we've we've uh we took a lot of your time already i know <laughs> you're a busy guy i could be talking yeah i could go all night i could listen to the <laughs> stories we could go, we could, yeah we could go on for a few days <laughs> but um sure. we, we gotta yeah, do well, a special no it's for, oh, sorry, for real, I mean, there's just like there really is like so much stuff to talk about, you know. And I apologize; I feel like I'm just running my mouth over here, but it's just like it's just a, it's a, it's a ton, you know. Like there's run, oh, you run for yeah. it. Yeah, you got a lot of information, and I feel like a lot of people need to hear that information. So, so never feel ashamed to share that yeah. information, brother. We appreciate that a lot. And we um, would love to have you back anytime too. You can yeah, run your mouth anytime to, you want, bro. There definitely has to be a part two, but like for for the people out there, you want to give them your your socials and, and where we can find the movie and and uh things of that nature yeah yeah so you can okay so you can basically uh so above the law doc on uh, instagram and facebook is where you'll find us and then lost time media on twitter um and we i would say like look i mean i am not a like you know we're not social media savvy types you know by trade i think that we've really that said have tried to make those accounts uh, not just a place to promote the film, but really to like get it, you know, to address and to share information about about policing issues more broadly. Obviously, with a focus on, on on Calgary and Alberta, but you know, there's relevant stuff there across the country. Um, so if you look up above the law, the CBC version, you can watch it on CBC Gem. If you have the app on either your phone or TV or whatever, you can also just search it online and watch it. They also have it on their YouTube channel if you're in Canada. Um, no visible trauma which is the feature version uh will be available starting uh this on friday the 22nd through uh the reframe documentary festival which is um out of peterborough ontario but thanks be to covid is going to be available online across ontario i believe um so that'll run for a week so if anyone wants to check out no visible trauma that would be the earliest opportunity um but it is going to be coming up at a bunch of different festivals around the country in the next couple of months. So just you can stay tuned for the socials for that. Oh, I would also plug. Um, so Godfrey, uh, after we released the um, after we released the CD, uh, Above the Law back in July, uh, a couple of folks that had watched the film were really obviously, uh, I think, horrified and by what had happened and wanted to support Godfrey. So a GoFundMe account was set up to. Uh, you know, help him out with the legal costs, with whatever, you know, whatever, whatever he needs. Uh, so that's still up and running and, and folks have been really generous, but it's, uh, so if you search uh, GoFundMe and then uh, Justice for Godfrey, uh, you would find it then. It's Godfrey, G-O-D-F-R-E-D, so God and Fred. Um, and then, yeah, and we didn't even get to talk about the lawsuit we're facing, which is probably maybe a good thing because, you know, I don't want to say anything that's going to get me in trouble. Oh, but yeah, I guess we are being that, sued. that'll be the part two. <laughs> yeah, why, actually, hey, why don't we do that? So that's, that's solid. Look, 
there's a lot going on. The story is not yet over. I, it's very possible that we're going to keep working on these issues and maybe even just staying in Calgary. But wait, why don't, yeah, why don't we plan to do another episode and uh, even a mini app or something like that, talking about um, what's going on with the lawsuit in a few months when we, when you have more details, because like, that's a whole other kettle of fish that we haven't even cracked open, you know? Anytime, yeah, they're anytime. They're coming for you, man. They're coming I want to know. They're coming it's, <laughs> it's all right. We won't let them get you, you know? No, no, no. Um, You're so part yeah. of the family yeah. now. Part of the family now. They got to go through yeah. all the minorities. Exactly. <laughs> so That's we right, really dude. Well, hey, I appreciate that, again. you know? Yeah, we thank you once again for No, for thank you so on. much. I think you're our only follower on Twitter, and uh, we definitely followed you guys back. Um, <laughs> you're our first and only follower on Twitter. You're the, you're the pioneer. Um, and then, uh, okay. oh, um... Speaking of which, we're sponsored by those delicious Dre treats. Dre treats. The Dre boys. Uh, shout out to the Dre boys. I know that. Um, Soon enough, they they'll make their way out to Calgary too. Yeah, we gotta figure out something Ooh. for for Calgary. <laughs> um, they they recently did um, a, a brownie uh, an like uh, one of, I guess one of their followers was doing like edible reviews, so they're reviewing some edibles, and they um, they gave. Her a, a brownie to review, and she was supposed to do an hourly check in. She did one 20 minute check in and lost her phone <laughs> for the rest of the night. So, wasn't that one of our previous guests? That was um, the, the uh, <laughs> hubristic, hubristic guests, yeah, yes. So, yeah, she she definitely got lost in the hubris. So, um, <laughs> them Dre boys, so you know, gotta follow them on Instagram. Matter of fact, oh, uh, Marky Marks, are you following the Dre boys on Instagram? I don't think so, but I think I'm gonna have to here. Yeah, Give me spell that out for me, like is in D R E boys. So it's D dot R dot E dot confections. Mm. See, he puts you on the spot. He forces. That's how we get. That's how we yeah, get all our followers and shit. Yeah, that's that's, that's <laughs> how we do. I gotta look. One guest at a time. <laughs> we're, we're slowly taking over the world, right? That's right. That's right. Um, it was. It's. Do, Go oh, ahead. Sorry, sorry. No, no, oh, I was no, gonna no. say, yeah, I was gonna say we, we we do have. I believe you're following the Minority Report on Instagram, right? Oh, you betcha. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, I think we, we covered yeah, all our bases yeah. with the socials and and whatever whatnots and we'll okay. put up oh, we all your socials as well. Oh, and we gotta give. Well, I'll just and I'll say that if you if you oh, I was just gonna say like so our Ravinder Apple and I who that we mentioned we work together so lost time media is our, our outfit so we, we've done a bunch of other films about things that are like a lot less you know intense than brutality <laughs> and accountability um, you know we've made a lot of great films about old ladies straight up and I say that in the most nice. respectful way like I think they're our favorite nice. topic we got um, you know old ladies in different parts of the world Portugal back in Calgary um, uh, I should say I should say older women. My God, old ladies. But anyways, like, <laughs> anyways, you can check out our work. I'm sure they're very ladylike. Uh, yeah, they're just vintage. Vintage. They are ladylike. Vintage, yeah. vintage ladies. Now, <laughs> now yeah, that's the two, okay. That's the new term. Can I can I use that? Is that cool? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Vintage ladies. I like that. And honestly, yeah. there's some some of the best people in the world. It's, uh, that's some of my favorite interactions. The sweet old lady. That's that's. Uh, you can't get past that. You're like. You got this far. I'm already cynical. You got this far and you're still a sweetheart. That's amazing. That's yeah. amazing. Kudos to yeah. you. <laughs> well, and I, I, I'm particularly fond of the ones that ain't so sweet, you know, the ones that got some spice there. With them, you know? Ooh. Yeah, but that's just real. Yeah, a little cumin. That's just real. I love that. That's amazing. 
thank you for coming on the show though it's been incredible yeah, it's been an incredible so talk much. i can't believe uh we <laughs> we we kept you here for so long but uh it's it's fascinating and it's a beautiful film and i really want everybody to see it because it's not it's not an aggressive take it's not it's not forcing you you know against the cops which is not the purpose here at all like i i i, I want to be very clear that like it's we don't want to encourage the us versus them mentality because it's it's it, i feel i don't know I'm, i can speak on my own behalf but i've like growing up and i've always wanted to have police as like sort of a fallback god forbid something goes wrong that's who you're supposed to trust so yeah. i really i really appreciate that you do you do present the facts in a light that's just uh you know very palatable you'll be you can you can take it in and really get a, a clear picture for for the end result of what we see as a passing instance typically in the media but it's not it's not in their lives it's not a passing instance it's a constant struggle yeah, after yeah, it's definitely a daily routine. Wake up and uh, beat some people. But we got to give a special shout-out to someone because we're actually going to get this um, episode profession- professionally edited because of our shitty editor, our regular <laughs> shitty editor. It's a piece of shit. Sucks. No it's terrible with the cuts. It's, it's so this one will be on time for sure. Yeah, this one should <laughs> be on time, and this one should be done with a, a level of uh, expertise unbeknownst to our editor. Um, shitty editor. We gotta, so we gotta give a special <laughs> shout out to to Sam for for sponsoring uh, the the editing for for this edit uh, for this episode. Um, yeah, hopefully yeah, they can deal with all that fumbling you just fucking did. I know, man. I'm so glad I don't play football because we would not be winning with the level of fumbles that I make. Bad news bears. Bad news bears. Terrible. On the bench, boy. Oh right, jeez. Uh, who you calling, boy? But anyway, so oh, the last thing oh, we can do—that's not how we want to end it, <laughs> right? Just a little bit of racism, old timey racism. That's you gotta hit him with the with the <laughs> reverb. Oh, Mark, we hit the reverb. You gotta go. Yeah, reverb. and then and then now. Re- yeah, Ooh, so wow. now our voices reverberated. We got some cool echoes, and then I guess the last thing is we can do is the bring in the beat. So we should bring in the beat right here. Thank you.